this like end of the journey, this destination where you're like, okay, I got what I wanted and I was satisfied, doesn't fucking exist. Humans are not made that way. Nothing. Like you could sell your company for a billion dollars because that's what you thought you want to do your whole life. And then two weeks later, you're like, why the fuck am I depressed? And I think the key to that is understanding. It sounds so fucking simplistic, but you see this in all this like religious do documentation that goes back like throughout human history. It's like the journey is a reward, dummy. Like, and I'm, I'm calling myself dummy to remember that, right? It's just like, and the way I think about it, the better than the journey is a reward, I like that term better. I like the climb. I don't care where the summit is. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen. I still don't know much, but I still have some very smart friends. And if you listen to this podcast, then no matter who, where, or when you are, you do too. Together, we will all explore how technology, investing, and entrepreneurship will create a brighter, more abundant future. This podcast is one of a handful of projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Today, I'm coming to you from a log cabin on the shores of Lake Michigan with my good friends, David Senra and Mitchell Baldridge. David is a biography reading maniac and the mastermind behind the extremely excellent Founders Podcast, which is simply the easiest way to learn all of the lessons of history's greatest entrepreneurs. Mitchell is the founder and emperor of the Baldridge Financial Empire, which includes tax and accounting services, better bookkeeping, cost segregation, tax credit hunter, and more. The man cannot stop starting companies. This is the third episode I've done with David and Mitchell. And if for some insane reason you haven't already heard my previous podcast with them, cue those up next. They're episodes number 50 and 62 of this podcast. Just a short scroll back. Today, we're recapping our amazing experience at Capital Camp. Uh, we talk about where David was a full-on nerd celebrity. We think talk about the things we learned from Berkshire, from Jocko Willink as a, a creator and an entrepreneur, and from Sam Zell. Rest in peace, Sam. Uh, David, predictably, yells at Mitchell and I to focus more. And we talk generally about the journeys, the highs, the lows, the peaks, the chase of being founders and creators. I hope you find some fun and some camaraderie in this conversation. Um, we have a great time doing these. And Capital Camp, uh, for those unaware, is a small, extremely fun conference put on by Patrick O'Shaughnessy and Brent Bishore in Columbia, Missouri. It's mostly investors, limited partners, business nerds of all stripes and flavors. This is a really fun episode sharing what we learned at the conference. This year at Capital Camp, I was there meeting investors and partners for Rolling Fund, the early stage tech fund I manage with two of my partners, Al and Bo. You can invest your money alongside ours in today's great founders. These early stage startups often fundraise quickly and quietly. We're lucky enough to get access to some of these great companies, and we welcome you to join us. In the past year, we've invested in 22 companies, including ALO, which is building nuclear fission microreactors, Gently, which is the Amazon of secondhand shopping, and recently, a next generation battery company that you'll learn more about on the next episode of this podcast. So please subscribe and keep an eye out for that. If you love these conversations and supporting the next generation of founders building transformative companies, you'll love the companies we invest in. You can check out some of the podcast episodes with Bo and Al to learn more about Rolling Fund. I'm honored that over 50 of you listeners have already joined the fund as investors. You can learn more at rolling.fund, which is linked in the show notes below. Accredited investors can join through AngelList today. And with a rolling fund, the sooner you invest, the more deals you get exposure to. 
If you have questions or you'd like to learn more, hear more, reach out. I'd love to sit down with you. Now with both ears and everything in between, please enjoy this conversation arriving in three, two, one. The funny thing is I just did an episode of Robert Caro and or Caro and I was listening to it back and like I'm talking obviously by myself <laughs> in this in a little booth. And there was just some parts of the book that got me so fired up that you can hear on the podcast, me like pounding my fingers and my hands on the book. And I listened to the podcast back and I said, I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> and you can definitely hear it. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm forceful when I put cans down or have books in my hands. I apologize. No, I mean, your whole life is sponsored by Jocko Go. I underestimated the extent to... I, the, it was a pleasure to meet you for the first time at Capital Camp. And four seconds later, we were in the car going to pick you up a pallet of Jocko Go because you just couldn't function for a week without like <laughs> just a fat stack of energy drinks. This podcast is brought to you by Jocko Go. Just very, very small, literally. That yeah, David's whole personality is brought to you by Jocko Go. Uh, <laughs> you told me, I actually wanted to see if you could, you could recap for us to the extent that you're comfortable sharing publicly the like story of Jocko Go. Cause that was one like podcasters starting energy drink just as a headline seems like a business disaster story waiting to happen and they're crushing. Okay. So I couldn't understand because like Jocko's got one of the top business podcasts in the world. He like, if you look at the charts, he's just like sits up there and he sat up there for years. He's probably got millions of people listening to him. And for the longest time, I was like, I don't understand. I mean, he's got, a, we talked about this when we do the capital, I guess we'll get to the capital camp recap too. But the day before we showed up at capital camp, me and Mitchell met up in Fort Worth, Texas to hang out with our friend, Chris Powers. And so we, this is one of the things I talked to Mitchell and Chris about is that I'm obsessed with the business model of podcasts. And so I'm always constantly paying attention to like what people are doing. And Jocko's got such an interesting, he's got one of the most interesting business models because he's got one of the, the most successful podcasts in the world. And there are these like three, four, five hour long podcasts. And then there's no ads at all. And then you get to the very end and it's like 30 minutes of what most people consider ads, but it's really him and his co-host Echo just talking about all the different ways you can support the podcast. And there's like, I wrote down, I actually took notes in a recent episode. It's like 20 different businesses that he started off the back of his podcast. Holy and one shit. of them was a ton. I mean, you can't believe how many. And one of them was this thing called Jocko Go. And I've never drank energy drinks in my life. Like not Red Bull, nothing, not Monster, none of them. And I was like, that's weird, like way to monetize a business audience. You know, uh, he's got a lot of like business and, and people that want to learn more about like leadership that are listening to his podcast. And I've been obsessed with like espresso forever. I would drink, I don't know, like three or four a day. This also comes because like my dad's Cuban and they do this really weird thing where like they give coffee to like kids. So like I was like five years old and drinking the stuff called Cafe Con Leche, which is like the way I would describe it if never anybody's never had it. It's like it's like a warm milkshake full of sugar and caffeine. It's like it's like one of the, it's like probably the worst thing you could give to a five year old. <laughs> and so um, and so I have a high tolerance for for caffeine and I love it and I'm clearly addicted to it. And I would drink espressos all day long. And I'm coming back because you you actually hooked us up, Eric, where your friend Chris Williamson invited me on his podcast because you recommended that he do so. And he's like, oh, I trust yeah, Eric's man. judgment. That would be a, I knew that would be a slam dunk audience and podcast for you. Like Chris is a great interviewer. He's got a great audience that should be totally dialed into to founders. And what I like about him, he's one of the hardest working podcasters. Because uh, we can he's talk a, about the, the conversation that me and Patrick, yeah. yeah, that me and Patrick had on stage 
that wasn't, you know, a lot of people, hey, did, they saw it and like, did you record this? It's going to be like released on Invest Like the Best. It's like, no, it's just for Capital Camp. And one of the things I said is, so it's like podcasts as a market full of second rate products. And even the people that have first rate products have second rate work ethics. Chris doesn't have, he has a, Chris has a first rate work ethic. He works incredibly hard in his podcast and I really respect that. So anyways, him being from England, he's like, hey, I got this date. Can you do it on this day? It was Thanksgiving day. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, dude, I can't do it that day, but I could do it like first thing the next morning. And so I'm driving back from my dad's place, which is like four hours north of where I live. And it's on Thanksgiving because I was like, I got to leave early because I got to wake up early in the morning and be on this podcast. So I'm driving down on Thanksgiving day, like everything's closed, even like the Starbucks, every single thing is closed except the gas stations. And I was like, man, this is a four hour drive. I'm going to need some caffeine. And I remember hearing on Jocko's podcast that he had, he's like default aggressive, which I really respect about him, but he had massively expanded his distribution network for his energy drink. And he's, I remember him saying, oh, it's in the Wawa's. And I was like, oh, there's a Wawa. And so I think the reason you want me to tell the story is because I go inside and I find the energy drink aisle or the energy drink where all the energy drinks are. And it's like, not for a second that I look, oh, like maybe I'll get a monster or maybe I'll get a Red Bull. It's like, no, they didn't make a podcast that has added an unbelievable amount of value to my life. I've found probably 15, 20, 30 different books from Jocko's podcast that I've read. And so I didn't even look at them. I was like, oh, okay, I'll just get this because I know who Jocko is. And I started drinking. And I was like, oh, wow, they work. <laughs> they work really, really well. <laughs> and so and so if I'm traveling and I don't know if I'm going to have like a steady sp- supply of like espresso, then I'll just get like the first thing I see you, I'd say, hey, what's up? And you said you had a car. I was like, oh, you mind driving me up to the corner? Like I had went on the site, <laughs> the store locator, like where can I find them? And just bought an entire case. So I had them for the entire week. And they built a big business in there really quickly, like shockingly quickly. So I have, uh, this This is something I can't talk about publicly, but I have, uh, not the actual numbers. I can talk about what I know. Just random is uh, I happen to be good friends. A friend of mine saw that I drink them and he's like, oh yeah, I manufacture those. And I was like, what, like, no, you like you resell them or something like, you know, he's like, no, I make them. I'm not like a retailer. Like I make those energy drinks and a bunch of other energy drinks. And then he broke down cost of production, how many cans certain brands would, you know, hypothetically sell all this other stuff. And I just could not believe like the size and the scale. And it makes sense, too, because if you see the guy that does uh, like Rockstar, his dad, the guy that owns Rockstar, I think he owns 100 percent of it. This information is like a couple years old, so it could be wrong. It could be changed in the interim. But the guy that owns Rockstar, he has like one of the largest collections of luxury homes in the United States. He's like, got like a $40 million house in like Colorado, like $40 million house in like Miami. Like it's just crazy. So obviously if you can succeed at them, beverages in general, but energy drinks in particular, because they are addictive, you can build massive businesses off them. But there's also a lot of people that fail doing it as well, like anything else. So the five-hour energy guys have billionaire as well. I mean, you know, there is a long string of billionaires of Red Bull and Rockstar and Five Hour Energy Drink and and all in all. I mean, all. Monster is one of the best performing stocks of like the last 50 years. I think I was talking to a friend who put together a presentation on 100 baggers and that was one of like the 50 that made the list. It's crazy. So this idea of energy drink times podcast creator is the nexus of David Sinra. But so, <laughs> so then... You take this, uh, that seemed to be a constant theme. I mean, it's all over right now and it's what we're talking about a lot, but it was a capital camp theme of, you know, we did this David Perel kind of breakout session about writing and I was sitting next to Jeremy and 
they say, talk about the idea you're thinking about the most. And I'm like, I'm thinking about creator economy, you know, the idea that you can kind of break out and have your own domain expertise, even though you may not be the most formally recognized expert. And Jeremy's just kind of like, yeah, I'm thinking of the same thing. And here's my extension of this idea. And it's just kind of like, well, did we just... So uh, for those people listening, uh, he's talking about Jeremy Giffon. I call him Jeremy Giffen because I'm not going to pronounce his French name the proper way. He's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. I think uh, Eric had a great idea where he's like, I kind of just want to invite Jeremy on my podcast and pull up his some of his tweets and just ask him to expand on them because they are. He's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. He was at Capital Camp too. He has this idea. I think he's going to work on the name, but he talks, to, He's basically he's like, it's very clear that just like you have technical co-founders, like there's just going to be a bunch of audience co-founders related to the drink conversation that this, I wasn't expecting to talk about this right now, but my daughter's 11 years old and she informed me that there is a black market at school for prime energy drinks by Logan, Paul and KSI, where like literally, I swear to God, the kids, some kids' parents won't buy it for their kid. It is in such high demand that a bunch of these like little boys and girls are paying up to $20 a bottle for a, <laughs> like on the, on the black market, on the secondary market for an unopened bottle, uh, unopened bottle of Prime. And I think they, they sell for like two or three bucks like, in the store. So that's a perfect Just example. You're going to corner the market. You know what? I've, <laughs> I've only been focused on founders, so I didn't even think to think about her business, but yeah, I should. I'll just buy cases of it and be like, all right, go, go attack this. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dude, that was, that was all like, day, baby. That was my first business was like buying cases of airheads at Costco and selling them for where you can get them for, I don't know, two cents each and selling them at school for at lunch for like 50 cents each to the kids who wouldn't, the parents wouldn't pack them like candy in their lunches. Best margins I'll ever have in my whole life. <laughs> When I was in middle school, unfortunately, because I was raised by savages, I was buying like cigarettes and like little joints. So I was like 12 or 13. <laughs> they would hide them in like highlighters. It was, it, that was not a good, looking back, because now my daughter's almost that age. I'm like, you better not be doing this stuff. That's just insane. <laughs> Give me your highlighters. <laughs> I love all those early like entrepreneurship stories. I actually think that's a really good heuristic for like when I'm meeting founders and stuff. It's like, what's your earliest recollection of entrepreneurship? Like, when did you start? When did you start hustling? Basically. You're always going to find something early. I like talking to like my wife's family. My wife's mom is one of 10 and her dad's one of five. And she has this whole extended family. And we have like younger cousins or second cousins who are, you know, in high school and talking to them or just, I like it when you talk to kids and you're like, what is the hustle today? Bring me up on the, or young people you meet on Twitter, especially you're just like, where's the action? Get it, get it for (laughs) me. And now that, you know crypto's done so they have to find different things to do but it, it these just perpetuate forever and which, which kind of like bleeds into this idea of the mix of people and the the crowd at capital camp and just the idea of it seems like a lot of yeah these people start doing these short 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 term games in elementary school and middle school of an airhead arbitrage. And then how does that become a long-term game? How do you become a long-term thinker from being a short-term thinker? When you pick up all these these skills and people along the way, I remember David standing sort of like apart from the rest of Capital Camp with you and Chris Powers and just like looking around and being like, this is a crazy crowd. Like, and it's still early in this crazy crowd. Like half of these people may turn out to be billionaires over the course of like, 40 years if this keeps happening and these people keep coming together and keep like supporting each other this is absolutely wild i don't know so what, was, what was your impression up. 
yeah, yeah. Let's let's do the let's reset the Capital Camp recap. Okay, so yeah, we'll start with Capital Camp recap for people that don't know what it is. So it's this event started by Brent Bishore and Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and it takes place in Columbia, Missouri, which is diff- very difficult to get to, <laughs> by the way. Small college town, like two hours from Kansas City. It's between what three to four hundred people. Like essentially, they call it like uh, what's it? it's like nerd like finance and business and investing nerds talking business and investing in shorts and sandals. I think is like the the tagline. Yeah, something like that. Like a food and wine festival mixed in because like Brent likes nice food and I'm not mad about that. I've never gone to a conference before. I went to one like in 2012, but it wasn't. No, it was nothing like Capital Camp. What I would say about Cap- the thing about Capital Camp is even before I knew Patrick, even before I was invited to go, it has an excellent brand like brand with entrepreneurs, investors. And now after going and then spending more time, I had emailed back and forth to Clayton. I actually met Clayton who runs Capital Camp full time because I was on your podcast like for the first time like a year ago. And he reached out to me. This is before I was on Colossus and before everything else. And I had mentioned that, you know, I'm an introvert and like uh, events. And he's like, no, I really think like you should be there next year. I am super impressed by Clayton. Like just the way, the, who he is in person, the, the how thorough everything was. Do you remember, I text you guys, it was super late. Cause like I had, I planned on spending a lot more time. I wanted to spend time with Mitchell and Eric and Chris and all these other people. And there was like this other thing going on that we could talk about later. And so I texted you guys. I was like, all right, I'm not fuck going to bed. Like, where are you guys at? I feel bad because I haven't seen you all day. And it was like 11 o'clock. And I walked over to your hotel where you guys are staying in the same hotel. Right. And we're just hanging out outside, talking, catching up. And out comes Clayton and like a bunch of the Capitol Camp crew. Because you could tell because they're in the, like the brown shirts and everything. And I guess 11, like 11 o'clock is when they're going home. So they've been working all day. 11 p.m. before they go out with this like, this like Midwest charm or whatever you want to call it. It's like they checked on every single fucking person out there just to make sure like, do you have everything you need? Is there anything we can do? And I got to talk to, I talked to Brent and Patrick about this. I'm like, man, you guys, like your organization is first class. Like they had a throat lozenge guy. Like, did I tell you the story? <laughs> Listen to this. So, uh, so we're at this dinner, right? And I'm sitting at with uh, the positive some people, which is Patrick O'Shaughnessy's investment firm. And that's just who I happened to sit next to at dinner. And I was looking up and I was like, going to call an Uber because I was really concerned because I was like, absolutely like roasted my voice. And the next day I was supposed to be on the main stage with Patrick. And I was like, I got to go to like the pharmacy. Like, man, I'm like not gonna be able to talk. Like I'm going to get some throat lodges or something. And I was like, so I said something like, oh, I'm going to leave dinner early. I got to go, you know, the pharmacy. Like, wait, wait, what do you need? And, And I told Patrick and he's like, oh, I have a guy for that. I was like, you have a throat lozenge guy? Like, what the, what are you talking about? You have a guy for this. No exaggeration. Less than five minutes later, a hand, like I'm still sitting at the table, a hand just slides up. You don't even see the face. I don't even see the guy's face. And an, enti- an entire thing of throat lozenges are there. Then I find out later, they're like, we have throat soothing tea and all this other stuff where I'm like, oh, you guys have thought about literally everything. So I, I think the start there is just like Clayton, obviously Patrick and, and Brent are running like very serious businesses. It's they're the founders of the conference, but like it's Clayton and his team that are that are thinking about this thing all year long while Patrick and Brent are off building their empires, you know, and I just every interaction with Clayton, every email, everything. I've just been super, super impressed with that guy. Yeah, he's such a nice guy. And he's so he's unbelievably calm in the middle of what is basically like 
being solely responsible for like a three day long wedding with 400 like opinionated people who like flew from all over the world to come together and just want to be like focused and present and have everything taken care of for him. It's he's so, so good. And his whole team, honestly, like, yeah, and to your point, yeah, they, this is what they work on all year round, like these two or th- two and a half days and just making them amazing. And it shows it shows totally well, he, shows. That's great it's thing. so you, thoughtful. Like, David, you know a lot about hospitality from all of these books you've read. And, and like you read Danny Meyer setting the table or you read about even Trader Joe's or even In-N-Out Burger and like how they it is incredible how people think about this stuff in the sense that like I run a services based business. So I always kind of like look at things like this and they touch on all of those things. So it's like a high touch boutique service business. And then they even have essentially a hotel or yeah, it's like Ritz and Escoffier on top of that. And I remember one time somebody had written a thread or even just just like checked Danny Meyer about how they had gone to like Gramercy Tavern in New York and it had this amazing element of service and they tagged him. And he came by and he was like, I'm just really glad you enjoyed your meal and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Danny Meyer just like walked by your table and and shook your hand. And it, it like people who are wired that way are unbelievable. And yeah, Clayton, Clayton is that like those guys have really built an exceptional mousetrap. <laughs> and now that it's and the, yeah. I say mousetrap because yeah, yeah, yeah. You go on, Eric. It was, it's but. the fourth one. So they really like I, I'm lucky to have been to all four, but like they have dialed it in progressively each time. And it's really like it's amazing. Now, it's exactly your point, like everyone's talking constantly. So there's waters everywhere. There is like these parallel sessions going on because it's it's a really just it, like the mix of people is what's super interesting, right? Like there's a whole enclave of like real estate folks. And then there's all the creators and then there's the actual investors uh, across all of these different things. And then there's family offices and there's endowments There's all these, like, I think what makes it so interesting is the mix of people who all sort of, sort of do business together, but at all these different levels and all these different methods and different industries. And so you never know sort of who you're going to be talking to. And you get this really interesting experience that's different from like, oh my God, I just met like five small value fund managers in a row, which is like basically what happens in Omaha if you go to the right meetup. Like, and Capital Camp is just so feels so dynamic that way. And then there's places where everyone's collected to like speak about a particular topic, like writing or AI or creator-led businesses or whatever. But everybody's just kind of like thrown in the soup for for meal times and stuff like that, shuttle rides, and you know, happy hours, and it all. It, it just like the collisions, the randomness that happens. It's like feels like honestly months of networking or zooming or whatever in that happens in two and a half days just who you get to meet and who you get to hang out with and the conversations you get to have is unbelievable i've had a couple like lunches and dinners with founder friends since i got back and i was like yeah some of them have gone in the past and didn't go again or some have never gone it's like if you have the chance to go you should go and if you once you go you should just go every year like even if you don't stay for the full four days go for two days do whatever you can but it's like you really should go yeah i, I feel super inspired by i mean we, we've talked a little bit more about doing an event or something together. The first we talked about like doing a live podcast thing, we've seen the acquired guys do it and a handful of other people, but like to do all the work for one night doesn't really pencil out. It doesn't seem to have like the same, it's not as meaningful economically for less work, but still a bunch of work. But is like, how many times have you had a one day event, like change your trajectory of your life versus something like that, that's immersive and multiple days and where you truly like leave with new lifelong friends 
or get to spend really, really quality, like memorable time with the people that you already sort of have built relationships with online. There's a line in one of Buffett's uh, biographies, like earlier in his career, this was before the the Berkshire AGM, where he was doing like these meet, I, I don't even know what you would call it. Like they're not meetups. I forgot what they're called. But I remember, I remember this guy would like spend like, I think like 1500, let's say $1,500, which is at that point, a lot of money. This is like probably 50 years ago. And his wife was just incredulous. She's just like, you're spending $1,500 to go hang out with this guy or listen to him talk. And his response was great. And she goes, or he goes, Buffett gives me energy. And I think that is the biggest thing. Like the last day of Capital Camp, everybody, the last night of Capital Camp, everybody kept saying the same thing. They're like, I cannot wait to get home and like hit the ground running. Like you cannot, people discount it. They think it's like this willy foo-foo shit. It's like, no, energy and passion and all these things are superpowers. And if somebody can fill you up, if going to an event makes you, you know, gives you a little bit, little extra, even if it's for the next few weeks or a few months, it's like worth the return on investment. Everybody there is trying to build an empire in their own way. Dude, I'm sure you went home on fire because you, you were like a celebrity there. I think you said you came up to me at the end of the first day. You're like, I haven't been able to eat a meal all day. As soon as I like sit down, someone's asking me questions. Someone's talking to me like, I, I don't have time to put food in my mouth. And I'm sure it's so rewarding to like feel that energy in person. I think I'm the only one. So you you mentioned earlier, it's like a food and wine fest disguised as an investing conference, right? And the food was incredible or so I heard. <laughs> like I didn't get to eat until the last night. <laughs> like it was crazy. So the one weird thing was, you know, one, I don't know how everybody knows what I look like. That was a surprise to me because like I clearly after the first day, it's like, I'm not wearing a name tag. This is like not like I don't need to wear a name tag. People it's like would just, Steve Jobs, no license plate for me. No, no, no. Because like people would read it and then like make the connection. And then also, I think this is unusual in the sense that uh, like usually there's a ton of people at the conference that had listened or listened to the podcast. So that's not, this is the first time, I guess what I'm saying is it's the first time I've been in a physical location where other than like a meetup I did with Shane Parrish, where every single person there listened to the podcast, where I'm around like a large concentration of people that listen. They're all nice. Like that was the cool thing. Obviously, you know, I don't do a podcast for any kind of fame. I would much rather be rich and anonymous, but I just so happen to be obsessed with podcasting as a medium. And obviously the, the success of my podcast is correlated with like how much I'm willing to like put myself out there. Like, and I will do whatever possible to get more people to listen because I truly do believe that I've created a, a really great product that will make your life and career better. So I don't give a shit about that. And it is cool. It's like everybody just comes up to you and they're like, oh, there is one guy. I got to tell you this hilarious story. I don't know if you guys were standing next to me or I forgot who, somebody was standing next to me. I'll get there in one second. So yeah, it was very cool to meet people in person. They kept thanking me and all I kept saying to them was like, no, thank you. If you didn't listen, I'd be this weirdo sitting in his room reading books and talking to a microphone all day. So like, I appreciate that you, that you enjoy it, but I promise you the fact that like, I love you more than you love me because you allow me to do this for a living. Like, I'll tell you this text I took, I sent a friend and I'm not gonna say who it is, but I texted him the other day, literally yesterday. And I was like, I, he was talking about the fact that the best podcasters, you could tell who the best podcasters are because their podcast is them. It's him, right? And I go, I felt that today. I lost track of time reading Ogilvy's Confessions of an Advertising uh, Man. That's what I was reading today. I was reading it for the second time. When I stopped, I said, I can't fucking believe I get to do this for a living. And so that's genuinely the way I feel when people are like, man, I love your podcast. I'm like, no, I love you. Like, thank you very much for it. There was one funny thing after, so I didn't talk to the last day. I got bumped. Can we talk about the fact that I was supposed to be the opening, the opening, me and Patrick were supposed to be the opening like presentation or talk. I got bumped by a billionaire, man. I got bumped by, is Brad Gerstner? That's that's how you pronounce his name, right? 
And I found out, I was like, okay, this guy's got $20 billion of assets or management. He made one of the greatest venture investments of all time. All right, that's fine. If I get if the podcaster gets bumped for that guy, I understand. But uh, I wound up giving the talk. I wound up giving the talk. The, the cool thing is I got to meet Brad and he listens to the podcast, which is also cool. But um, we should talk about the talks that we'd like too. So I got to talk on the last day. Then we go to this, how it works is, which I didn't know. You have this, the last presentation of the capital camp. I thought, okay, I'm going to have time to go back to my hotel room and get more throat lozenges, get more like energy drinks. And they're like, no, we're going to the farm. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking What farm? What are you talking about? I didn't know that like then the whole conference is like transported like, I don't know, 30 miles away <laughs> to this like beautiful farm in the middle of nowhere that's just incredible. And then they have this like cookout and fireworks and all this crazy stuff. But I had a funny interaction with this one guy. He comes up to me. He's like, man, I loved your talk. He goes, I must confess, I hadn't heard of your podcast yet and I, I haven't listened yet. And I was like, all right, we'll take out your phone and like, let's install it on your podcast player right now. Like, that's what I do constantly. Like, people say, it's like, I don't want to wait around. Like, you're not going to remember, just take out your phone. And, and um, then something happened where we installed it on his phone or whatever. And then he's like, uh, he said something, I, I, I'm, I can't remember exact words, but he's just like, is like kind of laughing that he hadn't heard it yet. I was like, listen, that's fine. But it's really important that you do listen to it because if you're competing head to head with someone that does listen to founders and you don't, they're going to beat the fuck out of you. And he laughed and laughed and laughed. And I go, I'm not kidding. Like I had a straight ass face. Like I am dead serious. This is, this is serious. Like you need to go home and listen to all 300 episodes twice. Like this is, uh, this is very important. And then like he, I don't think he was prepared for that. Cause like his laugh is like, oh my God, I'm in a conversation with a psycho. <laughs> But I do really mean that. I'm like, man, this is really important. Like you should, you should really listen to this. Uh, David, so there's this app for Capital Camp where you can like find the people that you want to match up with and search around and connect with them or whatever. And David's like tagline for himself. Everyone else is kind of like GP or whatever, <laughs> run around a family office. And David's just maniac on a mission, which is, <laughs> I think how Mitchell describes him in his, uh, his series of pitches of David Senra as a human being and founders as a product, which is fantastic and amazing. I, I will say like, I knew, I appreciate your energy of the podcast. I listened to the podcast for years. We talked on the phone and had the same energy. Like, I feel like this week watching you operate in, in person, like one, that's all extremely authentic. Not that I doubted it, but like for anybody who is curious and two, I feel like I learned how to be a maniac. Like I, I like the, the, the intensity that you bring in real life is like having these like conversations, exactly like the one you're describing, they like shake people up where you're like, that guy will remember that moment for months. Like not just in the fact that like, oh shit, I should go listen to this podcast and oh shit, a competitor might be doing it. But like the, your willingness to like put on the table the fact that like you're in a knife fight and like your business could die and your competitors are coming for you and like <laughs> you need to be awake and intense and like let's get your shit together like that you you felt that from the stage you felt that from the conversations like i could feel people reacting to you like sitting in the audience when you and patrick were talking and, and it's the same stuff you you have said on this podcast like i'll be doing this till the day i fucking die no one will ever beat me at this like bring it on I'm like here forever and you should all bring the same intensity to your work or you should find some work that you can like bring the same intensity to shut up and get it done. People were just getting like riled up. It was awesome to, to see and feel and be a part of. 
And I feel that though, like I got a dose of that because um, this morning uh, I'll put out the podcast in like a day or two, but I recorded, I read the confessions, I finished, I, excuse me, I recorded the podcast on the second, my second reading of Confessions of an Advertising Man. And if you sit down and you, and it's and it's incredible. Ogilvy's incredible. But I think I said on the podcast and I hope I did because this is the way I feel. But like you have these one-sided conversations with these people and they just hold you to such a higher standard. And every time I get done with a wonderful book like that from a world, he's a world-class founder a world-class entrepreneur. There are not many people alive that are better at their craft than he was at theirs. And you just get to end a book and you're completely fired up because he's just admonished you. He's like, the entire theme of the book is like, I don't give a shit about being the biggest advertising agency in the world. I care about being the best. Like I have 19 clients and he talks and he's also really cocky, which makes it fun where he's just like, I wanted, when I grew up, I wanted to be the prime minister of England. And he's like, now my, the, the, the revenue of my 19 clients are bigger than the GDP of her majesty's government. You know what I mean? He's just like, he's it's hilarious. It's so great too, because this is like at a point where, I mean, he does have 19 clients and he does have 19 huge clients, but this is even before Ogilvy was like Ogilvy. And, and I mean, this book is what really launched him. And I mean, just back to the like, David Sender idea of uh, uh, you were cocky before anyone ever knew you, which is awesome. And uh, everyone's uh, like, I'm always it's it's hold on, it's a cockiness to... based on the fact that you you've know you've done the work. Yeah, like I wasn't no cocky shit. when it... I I wasn't cocky when I had four episodes and they all suck because like you go back and listen to them. You know what I mean? But at yeah, this point, like... but at this point, like I've thought I've had enough practice of first of all, how many people in the world have done 300 episodes on a podcast? We know very few. But also, how many have thought about it every day for seven years? Like I'm. But it... he says in the beginning of the book, he's like, if you get a hint of conceit, it's conceit about advertising. He's like, I don't know how to play golf. I don't know how to ski. I don't know how to read a balance sheet. I don't do any of this stuff. So I'm not, I don't have conceit there, but he's like, when it comes to advertising, I clearly know, he's like, I clearly know what I'm talking about because he's done the work. I think that's the important part. Yeah, for sure. It, it just is so, it was jarring the first time I ever met you and we sat down and we had coffee. How, so uh, how like your thesis has not changed, uh, you know, things that your tactics have changed a little bit in the last year, but your thesis has not changed one bit except to just become, you've become more and more entrenched in, I, in your idea. There's a conversation we had on the last night because uh, on the last night, I don't, oh no, Eric had left. You had, you had driven straight from the farm. You were going up to like Michigan. So you had like a 10 hour drive ahead of you. So that night, me, Mitchell, everybody else, I was surprised how dead, every, like everybody went to bed. I'm like, oh, this is the last night we should go do something. So me, David Perel, Jeremy, fucking Giffon, uh, that's my nickname for him. <laughs> and, uh, Mitch, and, Mitch, <laughs> and Mitchell went for this like long walk. David wanted to give us like, uh, like he like took us on this walk around the campus of, it's Missouri, University of Missouri? Mizzou. Mizzou, Mizzou okay. yeah. And it was brought up that somebody like, they're like, but maybe David's, you know, getting distracted or whatever the case is. And I kind of snapped. It was like midnight when I said this. So I was like, listen, if people think that like, I'm going to get distracted from my mission or I'm going to like not take podcasting as seriously, or I'm not going to read every day, then like, they're not as smart as I thought they were. And if you bet against me, you're going to fucking lose in this one domain. Cause it's like, go listen to, I don't even want to fucking admit this publicly because it's like, it, it makes me feel like not the best. But I just did an episode, it's episode 305, it's on uh, Robert Caro. And one, you never know when a podcast is gonna resonate emotionally before you put it out. Whatever happened is like that came, came out and the next morning I woke up with a ton of text messages from really impressive people talking about how, how much, how they thought that episode was good. And then since then, there's just been a steady onslaught of emails, DMs, something resonated in that episode. 
And there, it ends. I would just beg you, even if you don't listen to episodes, fine. Listen to the intro and listen <clears> to the <throat> outro. And the, the, it, technically, it's about Lyndon Johnson, a young Lyndon Johnson. But it's not what I text my friend Stan Hinkie because he's the one that put me on the Carl books. Is Carl? Let me let me pull up the exact text message because you know this is probably the greatest living biographer, one of the greatest biographers that has ever lived. He's one of the greatest writers. His books take ten to twelve years to make. And I was like, Caro is able to make you see other people so well that you start to see yourself. And what I realized while making that podcast is like, I saw me in the hunger and desperation that a young Lyndon Johnson had for political power, which I don't have at all. Like, I don't give a shit about power. <laughs> I just want to make podcasts and make a lot of money. It's like, I felt the same way. So the outro is him just like seeing for the first time in his life. And he came from like this fucked up situation, a bad relationship with his father. They were like super poor. They were so poor that they didn't call it poor. <laughs> like he came from the the hill country of Texas, right? And the outros, the intro is one of the best intros I've ever done for any podcast. And the outro is like exactly how I feel. Cause it's like this kid's 23. He's like this poor kid gets to Washington and every morning his coworkers see him running to running to work. And they're like, what is going on with this guy? And it's because he goes at sunrise and he, the sun is shining on the Capitol building. And he realizes for the first time in his life, he's like right in front of him is everything that he ever wanted. And for him, that was like, he had a plan. He's going to be president. He's like, I'll be congressman. Like he literally laid this out. He's like, I'll be congressman first, then I'll be senator, then I'll be president. And that desperation and that, that just running towards his goal and not letting anything else in his life distract him from that. I was like, that's exactly how I feel about building founders. Uh, that's how I feel about podcasts. I really do feel, I know I say it a lot, like it is without a doubt a fucking miracle and people just get used to it. And that miracle has never, like it's, I, I'm not used to it. I still think it's a freaking miracle. The idea where like I sit in my room, read books, make a podcast, then I fly to Missouri. First of all, I get a ride on a friend's private jet, right? And then like he likes the podcast. And then other guys I've never met that were writing over us on, a, they like the podcast. They wind up giving me like really thoughtful gifts, which I think I talked about earlier. Or maybe that was before we started recording. Then I get there and everybody else, like these super successful investors and founders are all like, hey, I get a lot of value in your podcast. Like that's fucking a miracle, man. That is a fucking miracle. There's nothing else to say it. That is, and I'm sweating right now thinking about it. <laughs> it's a miracle leverage. It's a miracle of scale. Johnny was talking before the podcast with us about a <laughs> producer, great producer, Johnny. About, so we are hanging out right before we leave to go to Missouri. And Johnny's like, hey, David, I brought you this gift. And David goes, oh, people always bring me gifts. <laughs> and, and Johnny's like, oh, Mitchell, I didn't know you'd be here. I would have brought you something. I'm like, okay. And then <laughs> Chris Powers is showing... <laughs> David, this book about Trammell Crow, uh, you know, this old Texas real estate dynasty that's just massive. And David's like, oh, this is great. Can I have this book? <laughs> he just puts it in his bag and just walks out. And Chris is like, yeah, you can have the book, David. Sure. <laughs> but you just have to say that the great Chris Powers gave it to me uh, when you thought about it. But it just, David's just getting, he needs like three more suitcases because he's getting loaded down Dude. with bullshit all weekend. No, it's all books. That's I, the greatest thing. I, I, the, the greatest I can't greatest wait to find out what he stole from books. Charlie Munger's library. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Charlie, can I have this? <laughs> I didn't even think to do that. Damn it. <laughs> Dude, oh my gosh. Yeah, you're uh, not going to be asked back anyway. You might as well <laughs> shoot your shot. Uh, I'm leaving with okay, something. So, 
So two stories that your your uh, story just reminded me of, David, is so one thing I got to spend a few minutes at a table with Sam Hinkie, and he said this sentence that I think was amazing and stuck with me. Everything in my life I have, I got through writing. It's just like such an incredible sentence. And I am sure that he has an hour long or many hour long story to sort of unpack that. I think he said like, including his wife. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's incredible. And I mean, his his letter when he resigned as GM was famous, but I thought that was an incredible thing. And then about three hours later, I was talking to this guy who built a huge RIA, really successful, Josh Womack. And he's he talked about when he first left and he was like trying to get his business off the ground and trying to build trust with families and high net worth individuals and become like a successful RIA that he would write he would sit down and write handwritten letters every quarter to the same families over and over again that just that slowly like became his business and i, I like those those two things happening so 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 back to back like really stuck with me and i think it's an incredible like whether it's podcasting whether it's writing whether it's video whatever like we're talking about this miracle of of leverage and the relationships that can come from it and the scale, like there's something beautiful about handwriting, not having scale and being really personal. But we talk all the time about the, how personal audio feels and the scale of that with the personality, with the, the sort of deep personal relationship quality that comes from it is absolutely incredible. It's super underrated it become, and will it, be probably for decades. What it becomes too is like a calling card for who you as a person. Cause like, think about how difficult it is to like any high performing or like high value person is going to have a million people trying to get to them. And you have to like shuffle through a bunch of people. Like, are they worth your your very limited time that you have on this earth or not? And one way to demonstrate that is that you guys mentioned earlier, like Danny Meyer, like, you know, seeing something like coming by the table or maybe responding on Twitter and just say like, thanking you, like that level of hospitality. And what I had in mind when you told that story is like, oh yeah, the way I would describe that is not even hospitality. It's like somebody that actually gives a fuck about what they're doing. And so few people actually give a fuck about what they're doing. And I think that what I'm trying to do is like make it really easy to interface with me. And it's like, clearly like in this one domain, David gives a fuck. Like Patrick has a really gift. Uh, Patrick astonishing for people. So I don't like start naming people on a first name basis. No one knows what I'm talking about. He has a real profound gift for naming things. And you see that in like the titles of his podcast, but also like uh, what his investment firm is doing. They're looking for magicians. They're looking for live players. You mentioned that maniac on a mission. That's a line I got from Patrick. That's not even my line. I stole it from him. <laughs> no, I thought that so, was a, I thought that was a Mitchell line. No, no, no. That that maniac on a mission. Uh, he got. He actually got it. From, maniac was Mitchell. Uh, yeah, he called me. A, I think yeah, Mitchell was talking about uh, somebody should do a founders for the Bible, and people kept giving suggestions, and Mitchell's like, no, no, you're you're missing what you need. You need a singular voice and you need a real maniac. Like you need somebody that's like really, really passionate about this. I was like texting David, like, is it okay if I say this? And David was like, this is who I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, everyone's like giving me these milk toasts, like these two people with doctorates, like agreeing with one another on a podcast or like having like civil discourse. And I'm like, no, that is not a podcast. And and, um, and something you learn fire from, and brimstone. From, <laughs> and, and, and something you learn from these books, though, is that all the high performers in the industry or at the time that these people were living, they knew each other because like their A players want to talk to other A players. You know, uh, I remember reading Paul Johnson's biography of Mozart and Mozart clearly, you know, the A player <laughs> in his industry. And he would go talk to people in other industries that, he, that were at the top of their profession just because he's like, oh, this is like a, a kindred spirit, a like mind. And I think I love this idea. I, didn't, I don't know that story from Sam Hinkie about writing got him everything. I don't think I've ever heard that story from him. But it is a way 
like in the Ogilvy book, right? When he was starting out, he's like, I had no money and I had no clients. So what he would do is he identified 600 people that he wanted them to know who he was. And he would do these direct mail campaigns. And the direct mail campaigns weren't like, hey, I'm David Ogilvy. I just started Ogilvy and Mather. Hire me. He would just send them interesting information that he discovered through a lot of research and reading, right? And then what would happen is people would get the mail. He'd do the same thing that you were describing. He'd send the update every month or every quarter, whatever it was whatever cadence it was. And then eventually he gets on the phone with Sam Bronfman, who is the founder of the Bronfman family dynasty and the founder of Seagram's, right? Who I did a podcast on, which his life story is fucking insane. And what what does Sam Bronfman do? He comes to the phone and he starts reading Ogilvy, the last two paragraphs of this 16 page speech that Ogilvy had sent him. And what that told to Sam Bronfman, an A player, somebody t- that gives a, use that term, that gives a fuck about what they're doing, right? What that told him is that Ogilvy clearly gives a fuck about what he's doing. And what happens? What do you think happens? Bronfman hired Ogilvy and Mather. And the way, so the way, the way I look at it is like, whether you're doing a podcast, whether you're in Twitter threads, whatever it is, it's like, what, however you want the, the world to interface with you, like you should be broadcasting, like you're not playing around. This is very serious. Like work feels like play to me, but I take it very seriously. And I don't ever want to be called, tying this back to what I, Patrick taught me, told me this great line. And once you see it, you see it everywhere. And he essentially, he wants to fund maniacs on a mission and he wants to run away from this term he calls casuals. And he describes casual and then you start to see it everywhere. And it's these people that have a very casual approach to what they're doing. Usually they're not focused on one thing. They're doing fucking 15 things like very mediocrely. The way they present themselves is very casual. And he's like, that's not interesting to me. I like maniacs on a mission and I want to do everything I can to either put my resources behind them, my money behind them, my media company behind them, whatever. But the worst thing that somebody could say to me is like, David's a casual. I would jump off a fucking bridge. Like I find that so distasteful because I don't want to be around other people that are casual. I don't want to, I want people that like they're professionals. They take what they're doing extremely seriously and it doesn't matter what domain. I find it very interesting. I think this, uh, I mean, that analogy further extends or that idea of Bronfman and David Ogilvy connecting over this idea. Then like, if you read the CAA story and the Ovitz story and Bronfman and Ovitz connecting and, and Ovitz and CAA pushing all this literature out and, and taking the manuscripts and dropping them off at doctor's offices and, and lobbies. And, and it's just like the idea of, and then this circles back to that same idea of just these distribution-led businesses, uh, however they look like or whatever they look like. It's like, if you have good ideas, or frankly, if you even have bad ideas and you go start writing your ideas, first of all, your bad ideas will the marketplace will sort it out pretty quickly and you'll get feedback very, very quickly. I mean, I've learned more. I was telling Roger in my office this earlier. I was like, I've learned more in the last three years of writing in public than I learned in the entire career before that. And I was just kind of thinking out loud, like, I wonder if I'm going to learn more in the next three years working in public than I've learned in my entire career working backwards. Like, how can I keep doing that where I just keep going on this kind of like a convex curve of learning. And that's it be writing, shipping more often and shipping in public and shipping out to the smartest people you can find that are willing to spend the time to read your stuff and then be critical is the juice, man. So 
I'm going to say one more thing. Invest like the best. Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, aforementioned, the episode with Sam Hinkie, Finding Your People. Like, stop this podcast right now. Listen to that podcast and come back because I listened to that when I got back. And it's just a lot of what we're talking about rings true of just, and Sam talks about writing in that episode, by the way, but like, it just is, how can you play longer and longer and longer term games with longer term people? And how can you work on things that you're going to be working on in 10 years? Sam, I think David spent more time with him than I have, and maybe has more to add to this, but like, in my experience is maybe the most actively wise person that I know who's not basically like, I only know Charlie Munger and Naval at arm's length. And it's that persona is different than the person. Uh, Like I've interacted with Sam enough to know that like he embodies sort of some of those ideas and acts on them like on a daily basis. And that like, I just admire that so much. And I feel like I want to learn everything that I can from him and how he operates. You just spending 20 minutes hearing him sit there and talk to to Patrick and Jeremy. Like I took a ton of notes. I took a lot of stuff away with that. And I don't know, his his words carry a lot of weight with me. I feel like I can learn a lot from how he works and apply some of those philosophies that he's got. Yeah, it's episode 204 of Invest Like the Best. It's called Find Your People. We can leave the Colossus link in the show notes because you can actually read the transcript. I have the notes. For, uh, there's notes on that podcast that I re- review a lot. It's actually funny because uh, <laughs> there was like conflict, not a major conflict in the relationship between me and Sam for a while because he kept trying to like get an idea into my brain that I resisted. And then it realized like we both want the same thing. And I was like, it, it turned, I think we were in the car. I don't remember where we were, but I was like, he was suggesting I do something. I go, why don't you do that? He goes, because I don't want to. I go, exactly. <laughs> like the, I don't know if those <laughs> exact words, but like that click from us like, oh, like, we're very different people that have a lot of similar views, but like what, just one thing that he says, he's just like, that I loved in the podcast. He's like, I don't mind being alone in my opinion for a very long time. And that was one of the things I was talking on the walk with Jeremy and David and Mitchell. It's just like, man, like I don't, there's not one word from anybody, like my best friend to the people I respect the most, to my wife, to my kids. There's not one word anybody can say to me that would convince me that like, I'm on the wrong path or that I should not be doing and dedicating all my time and effort into the miracle of podcasting and then my contribution to that miracle and founders. And so I resonate with that. It's like, I don't mind being alone in my opinion for a long time. I don't care that no one else sees it like I do. I talked about this on stage a lot. And then another thing that Sam said is like, my firm is uniquely me. It's something that I want to spend decades on. And it's like, yeah, the podcast is uniquely me and it's something that I want to spend decades on. And I think just having, again, building a relationship, sorry, and I'll stop talking it was very helpful for me to hear that episode. And I've listened to it a bunch of times because even when you, as you build a relationship with somebody else, it's like, oh, podcasting is just building a relationship at scale. And it's a two-way street. Everybody's building a relationship with me. Some of these modality people, I don't know who they are, but the people I do know who they are, when I listen to them on podcasts, I get to know them at a deeper level. And I think that enhances our own relationship. Again, another miracle of podcasting. I'm curious for both of you guys where, if you were to like describe the arc of that conviction, like when, when it hits different points and how it has grown, right? Like, did you, I know you had a lot of conviction when you first started the podcast, David, but like, I I imagine that has only grown and probably in a nonlinear way, like based on the feedback loops that you've got. And and Mitchell probably has something similar sort of in the, the growth of his business. I think both of ours are like shifting a little bit more frequently than yours are, at least for the last couple of years. But I think that's a 
think for people who aspire to have that level of conviction in their own opinion of an idiosyncratic opinion that is like sort of the way to get apart from the crowd and have standout results, like just describe what it feels like to go on that journey. I didn't have conviction when I started. Like you can look at the upload schedule. I haven't changed anything. And you'll see the dates are very sporadic. It's very casual. Let's use that word. And it was casual from 2016 up until I fucking snapped in 2018. I talked about this on, maybe it's your podcast. I can't remember, but um, I just like, I did it because I love to do it. I thought it was fun. I never thought I could make money at it for the first two years because I remember back then in 2016, there's only a handful of uh, agencies that were selling, like you'd sign up with an agency. I don't even know what they're, if they're called that, but essentially like people that sell podcast ads for you. And you would talk to them. They're like, yeah, like you need a minimum of like 50,000 people listening. And there was like a couple hundred people, maybe like 2000 people listening at the time. I was like, what the hell? Like, I'll never have 50,000 people listening. Like that's just, that's never going to happen. And then I, I, you know, I just uploaded very sporadically. And then there was just these like weird indications, external indications, because internally I was like, man, I really love this. Like, I really liked doing this. Like, it's just a perfect match for like all the main interests or like I have four main interests, history, entrepreneurship, podcasting, and reading. And like founders is literally sitting in the middle of that Venn diagram. And then, but I started getting like weird messages and like 2000 word reviews. And like, there was just weird intensity and energy to this. And actually we should talk about this too. Cause I had a conversation with Jesse Puji at Capital Camp that I think is important to talk about because I still think solo podcasts are one widely misunderstood and two, one, probably the biggest underpriced at one of the biggest underpriced assets in the world. I think the fact that there's only they, the listener only ever hears your voice, it cultivates a more intense cult like following than if there was multiple people on the podcast or even like a reoccurring guest or whatever. But I was doing this for a while. And then I just was reading Paul Graham's How to Do What You Love essay. And I had read it, you know, multiple times before. And I remember like everybody's asleep in my house. My wife's sleeping in bed next to me. I think I'm reading like on like a flashlight or something. Or no, maybe probably on my laptop. And because now I have all of Paul Graham's essays printed out, but I didn't have, I didn't print them out back then. <laughs> They're actually really like, it's really cool to see his writing because I printed it out for the three, ep- three episodes I did on it. It's like, you know, a, a big book. But anyways, and then that essay is just like, man, I just believed that I loved doing it. And if I only focused on it and I worked on it seven days a week, I just had faith that I'd figure out how to make money at it. And it took from 2018 until 2020 for me not to lose money. So every month my savings would just go down and down and down and down. And I had, I was married, still am, and had one kid. Now I have two. And so that's like a very stressful period. It's like, oh shit, like I could. <laughs> but then I was like, all right, well, worst case scenario, like I can get a job. I assume I got, I could have a job. <laughs> I could get a job <laughs> and I'd just do it at night. You know, I probably will hire you. <laughs> yeah. And then 2000, it took till like 2020, but you see when I got serious, cause you could just look at the upload schedule. Yeah. It's like went from sporadic to, I haven't missed a week since 2018. And you'd have to like yeah, kill me. We, I had like the flu. I was almost dead last November and I was still uploading. Like it just didn't matter. We, we were at Capitol Camp like in during the welcome dinner. And I was like, are you going to come to dinner with like all the people that we flew here to see? And you were like, no, I got to read for four hours tonight. Like I got a podcast to get. I was like, you can't punt that for a hot second to like go meet all these people. And you were like, what are you fucking, what, what the fuck are you talking about? You weren't even yeah, like, no, nah, no. you were like, shut the fuck up. I'm getting out of the, pull over. I'm getting out of the car. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> I hate, no, I hate you for I suggesting I went, that. <laughs> I went back to my hotel room the first night and read and read and read. And like the podcast got out like on time. And now I'm trapping myself in the, I'm not, I had, had a bunch of travel last month, but now next, I'm not going anywhere for another month. So uh, I'm literally just like trapping myself in a room and just reading and making podcasts, which is like, 
very, like I get excited. Like the days where I'm like, oh my God, I have nothing on my calendar. I'm going to be alone all day. And I just get to like work in my little corner store on the internet. Like that's extremely exciting to me. So my, my point being, being is like, I don't think like you're born or like, you know exactly what you want to do. And then you have this like high level of conviction. I think you just go along kind of dis- through a process of trial and error and self-discovery and your conviction gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But once it started paying my bills and once I had like essentially infinite runway, I was like, oh, I'm never doing anything else. It's worth pinging or like earmarking this idea of, you know, I left my job in 2014 and I left to, just because I knew I could no longer be an employee of a CPA firm. Like it just wasn't going to work. And the idea that you can always get another job <laughs> like, or if you are and the younger, the younger you are when you leave, actually, the more opportunity you probably have if you haven't built up a mountain of responsibilities and mortgages and kids and and all this stuff i just that's become almost my main message to people is like you can go out on your own and the sooner you do it you think you have like less of an opportunity but you really have more of an opportunity in that you can just live simply so david if you ever need a job Come on, like how how are your accounting skills? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Terrible. I'm only good at one thing in life. I you, promise you. The only thing I could I'm good at is podcasting. I'm not good at anything else. The, you're like less employable than me. I love that. <laughs> Far less. Okay, so I have a story to briefly share on the creator-led business thing because I think so. I spent a lot of time at Capital Camp with Kevin Espiritu, who's the founder of Epic Gardening. I recorded a podcast with him, which came out last episode. But I also got to do sort of an off-the-record, like private session. And there's a story there that I think is an incredible thing that you you guys will appreciate. But he's an amazing example of somebody that, like Mitchell was talking about, like went out on his own, young, started blogging as a side thing like nights and weekends, systematized it, it grew to the point where he could hire somebody, hired somebody for the blog. Then he started doing his own video stuff. Then that grew and then he systematized and hired somebody for that and like slowly snowballed up this media business that he was like, okay, this media business is big. It's one of the biggest media or gardening media brands in the world now. And he's like, but it's not, it's not ever going to be a $10 million a year business. Maybe it'll cap out at a million or two. So I think I should start selling products and because of this feedback loop with the audience that we we talked about a little earlier that you started saying like there's no clearer feeling than when an audience is like demanding something from you and you know that you have already collected the people and so he started adding products like that he met was showing in his videos that people were asking about or commenting on and that turned into the majority of the business and he's now like taken on outside capital to buy he's made three acquisitions into this it's turned into an enormous business that literally started with a blog and just rolled up he's he's like an amazing entrepreneur he's got a great story he's a really really nice guy so i think that's a great story but it sort of it shows he's a perfect capital camp story right he's like he's a creator who has the savvy of like taking the right step one at a time, works with outside capital, built like kind of a very interesting multifaceted business over the last 10 years. Really, really interesting, interesting story and interesting guy that feels like it sits in the middle of our, our interests. Who do you raise money from? Is this like a V, this isn't a VC thing? Is this PE? Like what is it's, it? It's kind of like PEVC hybrid. I think the firm is called TCG, but like they love to work with these kind of like content commerce. Wait, the Churner companies. Group? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. 
and I think it's like his, his Kevin's story is very similar to Al Doan, um, who is a partner in the fund and started Missouri Star Quilt Company. Like uh, maybe the oh, moment the- of starting those, the yeah, quilting company, but like both amazing stories. And I don't know, it, that whole category of things is so fascinating to me where you have a profitable media business and a profitable e-commerce business. And when you combine them, it makes them both more powerful. And as a unit, they're like kind of unassailable by any media company and by any e-commerce company. And Kevin has this theory that there's creators who are going to end up basically accumulating entire categories because of that sort of feedback loop and the reinforcer. Like they have all the trust, they have the products, they have the, the attention. And the what do you mean accumulating entire categories? Of each of those. What do you mean? So like for category? Him, so like let's see, garden, gardening is like a clean example. And he's like, the gardening market is like 25% Home Depot, 25% Lowe's, 25%. I think there's one other big box and everything else is like small, long tail, like mom and pop shops and e-commerce. And he's like, I think the addressable market for the lead creator in that space is basically 25% and maybe 50% over the long arc as like Epic Gardening becomes the e-commerce brand unto itself. Like Al, Al's de- company, Missouri Star, Missouri Star is like the biggest fabric retailer in the world, I think, because they own that like they own that market to such an extent. So I don't, it'd be fun to brainstorm maybe some, what are some of the other categories that'll end up under specific creators um, or who already has, like, I don't know what amount of like the online wine market Gary V had at one particular point, but if he would have not done anything other than like be the online wine guy for 25 years, he might own 25% of like wine e-commerce. I don't know. He might have a bigger business than he has today. Yeah. Frankly, he he, you know, on one thing. he could yeah. have a bigger wine business than he has a media business. Yeah, I, or I think that about accounting and being a CPA in this weird like I could move faster, but I've finally like hit this groove. And it, I think you'll always say like, oh, if I knew three years ago what I know now, I would have done this and this and this. But and I'll hopefully say the same thing in three years from now. But it's just there is a long runway and there is a long, a large moat of just, again, no one's going to create a better biography podcast than David Sinner ever if they start today and they start doing two a week. It's just impossible because you can only do so many. And so, yeah, there are all these niche silos that creators can come in and either buy a business and bolt on or, you know, start a business and incubate a business and it's bananas. Oh, so th- that was the that was the story I wanted to tell you guys. So, okay, so this is the story from the off the record. I'm going to paraphrase Kevin's story that he told sort of offline. We didn't manage to get in the podcast, but it's also pertinent to the fact that David and I are both wearing Capital Camp hats right now. I'm actually head to toe in like Capital Camp swag. So Kevin went and visited this um, uh, business. A- hold up. If Clayton is listening, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I love the Capital Camp shirt so much. Will you please send me, send me more? <laughs> Thank you for interrupting me for that, David. That was totally worth it. Totally. Can you send David some free shit, please? He doesn't get enough free shit. Isn't that the theme of the podcast? Someone send David a tracksuit. Clayton, I love Clayton, but he made a shirt for me. He made an Ernest Shackleton by Endurance We Conquer shirt that I wore on stage. I absolutely loved it. So. Sorry, because I I that, see the shirt that, that you're wearing, cool. and I like I was wearing that yesterday, and like if it wasn't dirty, I'd be wearing it right now. <laughs> like, it's incredible. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so th- this is the power of of wearing a brand, right? So Kevin went and visited this company that they were thinking about acquiring, 
and met the found. There's like a found, mom and pop founder. They've owned this business for 25 years. They're ready to retire. They care about it a lot. Kevin went and met everybody. I think it's sort of early in the acquisition process just to get a feeling for them. And I don't know if he bought the hat or they gave it to him, but they gave him a hat. And he went home and he put that hat on it every single day for the next six months. He wore their brand and never said a word about it in every single video and every single podcast and every single, like no matter what it was, he was wearing their hat. And six months later, they closed the acquisition and the founder said to them, like to him after all of it, like, you don't know how much that hat meant to us. It was a small, like unspoken signal that like he cared and was willing to sort of give first and join their team as much as they was they were joining his i thought that was just such an awesome story of of, of small gestures that mean big things and, and get big things done and funny now that like we're all wearing capital camp hats sort of in in appreciation of of them i'm just glad that they found one that fit the size of my head I don't, i've never told this story in a podcast so this is going to be a smart friends exclusive just for you. I played baseball when I was young from the time I was like four to the time I was like 12 and then switched to basketball. And this is one of the most embarrassing stories. But if anybody see me, they don't have a giant fucking head. And when I was like five or six years old, no, maybe like seven or eight years old, I could no longer wear kids batting helmets. So I had to wear a small adult helmet. <laughs> so I literally try to put on this, this hat and like, luckily it extends to extra large noggins. And so I'm able to fit mm. it on my giant head. You know what they um, say about guys, I, uh, guys with big heads. One thing to close that though, because uh, I didn't know you introduced me to Kevin. I didn't know that he was part of the churning group. And from what I hear and people that know them very well, they th they have like a fantastic reputation. And I think they may understand this content to commerce. I hate to call it a trend because it's been around for a long time, but something that's become more important in the age of the internet. They understand content to commerce more than anybody else. I just went to, there's a fantastic podcast that Patrick from Invest Like the Best did with the guys that are running Churnin. Now it's episode 220. It's titled Content to Commerce. And another thing, like if you go to joincolossus.com, you can actually listen to them there, but you can also go through the transcripts. And so people are always messaging me. They're like, I wish founders had transcripts. I'm like, they do. They're just not on founders websites because Colossus takes care of that. But that's uh, like, I'm going through as you were talking and just like reading some of the show notes and transcripts from that episode. I remember listening to it a long time ago. But if anybody wants like an overview, those guys seem to be like the top of the game. Yeah. They've done a bunch of those deals now. They just did the, the last one that get garnered mo the most media attention is the one with Doug DeMero and Cars and Bits. Mm, that was a big deal, wasn't it? Do you remember the number? I don't remember the number. I guess Barstool is where I have them stuck in my head. But I think they got, from what I, I understand, they got to Barstool early too. So they participated yeah. in quite a bit of the upside. I came home with so much Capital Camps. Uh, Capital Camp, they give you so much swag that they give you a duffel bag to put all your swag in at the end of the swag. And my wife was just like, could they just lower the price and give you less swag? <laughs> so that, that was Melanie's note, Clayton. But uh, I said, no. <laughs> We need all this. My wife is happier with the Capital Camp <laughs> swag I brought home than the than the Berkshire swag. It's, it's just not a not the same classiness, you know. What's David? Is this what's Power League Zach? Is that your note? The day before, so on Monday, I flew to Fort Worth. Mitchell was kind enough to pick me up from the airport, and then we went and met Zach for. I guess it's a, your friend. He also listens to founders. He's not your attorney, but he works on like a bunch of deals with our friend Chris Powers, right? Am I, do I have that Chris correct? Chris's consigliere. Yeah. Ooh, so like this like shadowy, yeah, this shadowy smart figure. And there was just something that he said to me that was interesting. Do either of you golf? No? 
Okay. So I didn't know if this was a term for, if this was a, a term for golf, he used that as an example, but I wasn't sure if that was just a way to describe it. But he talked about like the, the level of focus where if you have like one product and like, like I do with founders, right. And you put all of your effort behind it. He told me this great story that like, I don't think I'll forget. And he says like, you have no power, like he called it power leak or leaks of power. Power leak. Yeah. Power yeah. leak. And he talked about like, uh, in golf, there's like multiple parts of your swing that can be complicated. And like, you'll find leaks of the, the power that you can have to drive the ball. Right. And he talks about like through the entire, all different parts of the swing, you could find little things that if you like, you're in a different position, you've kind of limited the amount of power that you're able to produce and hit the ball. And he's like, the, the good thing about your, your relentless focus is that you have no power leaks. It's like everything. I thought this was a very profound idea and something that I know intuitively, but I never had a the term for it. Whereas it's like, if you're not being casual, if you're not trying to spread yourself over a bunch of different things, right? And you really just find what you're meant to do and you focus on that and that thing completely. Now you could do other things, but it all feeds back to your main thing as opposed to like a bunch of disparate different businesses or collection of activities you're doing. And so I just like that idea. I just wanted to bring that up on the podcast where I thought that was a very powerful idea. It's like, well, focus is a superpower. We see that with like the history's greatest entrepreneurs, like Jesse Puji, who I met at Capital Camp, he texted me earlier. He's like, hey, can you give me some recommendations for great biographies? Because he's going on vacation. And he's like, I'm particularly interested in founders' biographies on people that have hold coasts. And I started going through, I gave him a list of like some people. And I was like, I, there's, I don't think anybody on this list has a hold co besides Daniel Ludwig, who started out with a very valuable shipping company that spit off cash. And he took that cash and winds up buying and it's starting, you know, 200 companies in 50 different com- countries at his apex. But the interesting thing about that is like a lot of the people at Capital Camp wanted to do hold calls, right? And I can understand why, because like think about what like the really successful and world-class business that Brent has built. And I went through my episode list and I was like, there aren't any. They All of them that built, that were so good at what they did, besides like Berkshire and all these people, Berkshire. right? Yeah, Berkshire. It's just like the vast majority of people, they didn't, they didn't have like a very successful hold co., they put all of their hour, all their efforts behind one business. There was no power leak. I just did this long tweet on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And I just collected, I was like, there's like 40 something of my favorite quotes from Sam Walton's autobiography. And I said like, you know, there's like a bunch of smart shit that Sam Walton said. And one thing that he said in there, he's just like, I, ne- I didn't think about anything else and I didn't invest in anything else but Walmart. And so this wasn't, I wasn't planning on talking about this, uh, making that connection because this just happened a few hours ago. I was just like, oh, wait, that that does tell me something. Like there's 305 episodes up there. And besides Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, Daniel Ludwig, and Henry Singleton, like there's not a bunch of hold codes. There is, this is my, like, this is the stake I'm putting in the world. And this is where I'm going to put all of my power behind and all my focus behind this. And I think there is something to, like, I do think focus is underrated and is a superpower. And so I just want to like put that idea out there because listen, people should do whatever they want. They want to build a bunch of hold codes. That's fine. I think what a lot of people miss is that hold codes don't start out as hold codes. They start out as like one great business that throws off so much fucking cash that can't be reinvested into the business that you got to find something to do with it. And then logically they buy other businesses, which makes a lot of sense. And that's one thing. But like, so my thing is like, just focus on building one world-class business instead of five mediocre businesses. I feel attacked. (laughs) Um, the idea of like build a business that creates so much cash flow that you have to then hire a manager and and these big hold codes that are successful have really really talented people do you feel at at every mitchell do you feel like you're 
do you feel like you're running five different businesses or do you feel like you're running one that are somewhat artificially separated by like names and corporations and bank accounts? Because there's a lot. I mean, like Bernard Arnault owned, I don't know, however many different like actual corporations and shells. And like there's all kinds of people who did a bunch of stuff all under one umbrella. And I feel That's like you're, you're kind of like That's flirting with that one. Yeah. It just, he doesn't really count as a hold code. Like it was still all under one umbrella or conceptually. And if you look at the and look at where the re- most of the vast majority of revenue and profits come from. It comes from fucking Louis Vuitton. Like, I think it's like 70. I, I forgot what the number is. It was on Acquire's excellent episode about this. I think they said, what, 70 or 80%. I think it's like 80% of the profit comes from one fucking brand. And I mean, I think I got back from this conference and I, I've said it five times and I'll just say it again. It's just of everything I'm working on, what is the thing I can be working on a decade from now? And what is the most interesting thing I can do? And yeah. And what is the most powerful thing I can do? And what's the thing I'm most excited about? And, and that, that means the most. And like Kosseg has been a massive, massive driver. It's just been a win. It's been a huge win, but I'm not the CEO of Kos- of Ari Kosseg. Melanie is, and she does a really good job of it. And I don't have to spend that much time on it, frankly, even though I was able to help kind of like architect the plan. And then, and then we were able to hire somebody who knows more about Costec than I do and than Melody does. And it was able to kind of head up engineering. And so like you start to see, but the problem with the Costec business is there's a cliff. Bonus depreciation goes down every year. Rules change. The IRS can just, or Congress can come in and pass a law that just fucks the whole thing up. So then you go, is this a long-term game? And what it is, though, I don't know that it's a long-term game because it it's bound by regulatory risk, but building a good business and hiring good people and learning everything I'm learning is a very long-term game. But to your point, David, or, or to Zach's point, I guess it is, is like there is a power leak when you've been playing this game and you've been building this thing and then... With a stroke of the pen, the whole thing gets turned on its ear, and no one can do that to the founders' podcast. So you know, or, you know, no one can come in and totally unwind the hours and hours, you know, hundreds of hours that you've done already. So that's an underrated thing about podcasts. With that being said, the open the open yeah. protocol piece, like it's just like an email list, not like a social media platform. Like you can't get deplatformed from a podcast. And I just want to make it clear, like, I don't care what other people do. I've told you that rule number two in the center family household is mind your business. If someone says, fuck you, David, I don't want to focus on one thing. I want to focus on 15. God bless. I don't think about other people. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm just focused on what I'm doing. All I thought was interesting is a juxtaposition between this clear, there's a clear trend in the entrepreneurship community of hold co, hold co, hold co is like fucking going crazy, right? Where... And that's fine if that's what you want to do. It doesn't matter to me. I just thought it was interesting just a position where I was asked a question by give me a bunch of biographies of great people that had Holcos. And I went through a list of 300 and I found like four. That should tell us something. That's interesting, is it not? Like, and I think it ties to Zach's idea of power leak. That's it. That's all I'm saying. I don't care. Again, I think last time our conversation got a little bit cantankerous and I didn't mean it to because I really don't care what other people do. I just am telling you, like, this is what I've discovered in seven years of reading, you know, over 100,000 pages. You don't really see a lot of people. The distracted don't be the focused. That's a fact. 
And so like, this is my whole thing. And I said on stage, it's like, if you think you're going to come into the podcasting game and like treat it as like this side thing, use terms like I want low lift. I don't want to do a lot of work and all this other stuff. And you're going to compete with somebody and you're distracted. You're working on fucking 15 things and I'm working on one and you're going to compete head to head against me. I'm going to fuck you up. And it's not going to be by like a tiny margin. You know what I mean? Like that's the important part. It's like, I don't want any power leaks. I want all of my effort and energy and focus on this one thing. And this is not a unique idea to me. It goes back to hundreds of years of capitalistic history. It clearly is a good idea. And when the outcome is a power law, like it matters a lot to be in the number one slot, not the number five slot. Like the, the difference multiple there could be 50x or 100x or 10,000x, right? Go listen to the episode 204, which is what you guys were talking about. Hold on, let me grab my notes again. And one of my favorite things, so th this is actually interesting. I was talking to my friend John Coogan yesterday, who is going to uh, start a podcast. And he's one of these people that should have a podcast because he's a madman, right? Where it's like, he gets to like, he's the EIR at Founders Fund. And like, he'll like go and like read every single past deal memo. He'll read the entire history of their fucking Slack. He'll read all these books on the history of all these industries. Like he's doing these documentaries on the defense industry and all this other stuff. And I have so many conversations with them where his YouTube channel is like scripted and it's really good. But in you'll have like a three hour dinner with John. And this just happened in New York like two weeks ago or something like that. And it's just like, man, there's so much interesting stuff that comes out of your mouth because of all the research that you do that you clearly like you're you should have an unscripted podcast is, is basically what I said to him. And he was he has this idea of like doing these extensive deep dives about these power law people. He just can't figure out a name. And he said he's like, well, I was kind of partly inspired to, to figure out that name because I heard you say in one of your podcasts that people are a power law and the best ones change everything. That's not even my line. That is Sam Hinkie's line that comes from Find Your People, episode 204 of Invest Like the Best. And I think what Sam hit on is more true with what, what Eric just said in the age of the internet, which is something that's in your Naval book. It's like you can, and something Jeff Bezos talks about in his shareholders, you could be really small or really big, but the middle is destroyed and the vast majority of financial returns are going to be accumulated by people that, die, like power laws rule everything around us. And if I can build the number one best podcast on history's greatest entrepreneurs in the world, I will reap more benefits than the next 15 or 20 on that list. There's also something about that, that Sam talks about in that episode that he's, I think he's observed because if you think about like what Robert Caro has, Robert Caro has done, he spent 50 years writing essentially about two people. You know, he's telling the story of how power really works in the real world, but he wrote about two men, Robert Moses, power, that's a, talk about power laws. Robert Caro, Caro, mm -hmm. goddamn, I can never say his fucking name correctly. Robert Caro says that it, it's highly likely that Robert Moses is the greatest builder in American history, or excuse me, in world history, that no one ever has built more physical infrastructure and physical things than Robert Moses did, right? So that is like the mm -hmm. definition of a power law person. Lyndon Johnson, no one had ever mastered the Senate like he had mastered the Senate. And so I just want to read two quotes from that, that my notes that I think about all the time and think about like how I can implement this into my, my work without like, they were ruthless. Both Lyndon Johnson and Moses would run you over if you got in there. I'm not interested in running people over. I'm interested in accumulating friends, not enemies. I think it's very dangerous to go because humans are the virtuosos of violence. And the more, and everything's compound, everything compounds in life and friends compound and you're going to have a lot of good benefits, but enemies compound too. So like you don't want to go around, you know, accumulating enemies because you have no idea what the ramifications of that 
humans could be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. But Sam said that Caro profiled two men whose seeds were not high in the tournament of life. They were both born without many advantages. And to get to all the way to the top, they probably had to sacrifice everything to the effort. The meta lesson, this is such a good idea. The meta lesson is that if you're not willing to pay the price, presume that someone else will. If you want something like the presidency, or I put in parentheses, or being a billionaire or starting a a world-class company, you should presume that there's someone out there who will devote all their time, money, relationships, sense of ethics, everything in the sacrifice of that one goal. Of course, that person is going to win the race. And he's talking about Moses and Johnson, but you also see it with people trying to build fantastic businesses as well. It's like, look at the sacrifices they've made. And I think part of that is what he's talking about. It's like, Moses wasn't fucking multitasking. He wanted to build things. Lyndon Johnson, his entire life, every single decision except one that he made in his life was for the accumulation of more political power. The one time that uh, Robert... Caro, Car, Caro says in his writing, the one episode in Lyndon Johnson's life that juts out, that is an anomaly out of everything else that deviated Lyndon Johnson from the more accumulation of more political power was having an affair with this lady named Alice Glass. Alice Glass was married to uh, one of the wealthiest people and a newspaper publisher, if I'm not mistaken. In they were very this older guy that was very instrumental to helping Lyndon Johnson's career and Lyndon paid him back by sleeping with his wife. And that's the only time where he ever did anything that could have led to the not accumulating more political power. And so again, I think everything comes back to like these people have insane levels of focus. Well, and Robert Moses, the greatest builder of all time, built that book, The Power Broker. It's a long book, but if if you read the first 50 pages, you start to get this, it, you know, it starts with this huge map of like, all of New York and you start seeing the expressways and the parks and the parks inside the city and the massive parks on the coast of Long Island and and like everything that he did. And he was singularly focused on a massive task that took 50 years, 70 years. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So he was building a hold co, (laughs) you know what I mean? He was doing a lot of things that all had to come together over a very long period of time. So it, it's not, hey, don't have a big idea. So you, you asked me, Eric, like, do these things all fit together? I think they all fit together. And I think it, like, it's just how quickly can they all be done and how can they all be done very, very well. And David will go part of a business that does something big off of the back of his podcast, but it's not gonna take his focus from his podcast. That's for sure. It's but it's going to make them a lot of money. What What was your favorite? We deviated a little bit from our Capital Camp recap. What were your favorite parts of Capital Camp? Or what are the parts that stuck out to you? They could be like presentations, conversations, like what sticks, now we're, week, we're about a week removed. It was about a week ago when I saw you guys. So like what has stuck out in the last week? Your talk was fantastic. That's David. not what, I was not asking uh, that question. <laughs> I know. Uh, Gabe Bladen was great. Gabe Layden is a video game designer and a contrarian, unique thinker <laughs> that had a pretty hot take just about kind of what needs to happen in general working in the U.S. for things to get turned around and for a, a full return to normal to happen, which is probably a lot of people need to get let go of a lot of companies and people need to become more 
serious about work. (laughs) That's a fair recap. I thought the man that bumped you, David, uh, (laughs) the meta open letter, it was the same idea. And the idea about AI, uh, you know, from the lead investor of Snowflake to then go to these opinions on how AI is going to fit into the world. Like, I, I think that's going to be meaningful over a certain period of time. What about any, that, private, that all was, any private conversations that you had that was that stuck out in your mind? Yeah, yeah. So like that all, uh, uh, the programming was great and the programming's great at Capital Camp because they've, they've done a lot less of just the one to many, you're listening to a podcast <laughs> and no offense, Eric, like the great part of Capital Camp is that there's 400 people there and there's some people that you only see there every year. And then there's a bunch of people that you get to meet. And I mean, yeah, that, that day that, Eric, you and me and Sam and Patrick and Jeremy Giffon are <laughs> sitting at a, <laughs> at a table together. I mean, like, that's a conversation that I'll, I'll think about for a long time or that walk we went on. Like, yeah, just all the talks leading up to it and the dinner that we went to, David, the night before. But just, yeah, I, I haven't. It's funny, I had a call today with a guy who we're going to actually do some business together from Capital Camp, but I did not have, I have not created, or like me and Chris work together and that stemmed out of Capital Camp. But what I've gotten, like this call I was on today with this guy who runs a private credit fund and we're going to start out of the tax credit business, like pre-funding ERC credits, just basically giving people the money up front and then selling the credits into this private credit fund. And I met him at the first capital camp I went to. I've met him at Reconvene. I've met like this guy probably three to four times in my life. We have a common friend who lives in Houston, but it's it's kind of like, look, we get to now talk and we just trust one another because I trust him and he trusts me. And then we have this conversation where we just get to cut all the bullshit and just be like, hey, we're both after the same thing, which is for us to both win at this. So let's build this entire relationship with that understanding. And you just cut through. So me and him sat at a lunch at Capital Camp and sketched out this entire agreement in 30 minutes. And then we got on a call today for an hour and a half and hashed out the rest of it. And it's done. And it's just, you don't get that in a day on both sides. You can't build mutual trust really, really quick, or it's hard, you know? <laughs> and so what about you, what Eric? I've gotten. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I, d- I had some of the same experiences as Mitchell and agree with them about the programming and, and that sort of lunch we had. The sort of, aside from the stuff that I was like hosting there, the mission that I was on was to meet as many family offices there as I could. And I think to the, some extent, like what Mitchell is saying feels really true, right? Like the implicit context or trust in that environment is like, there are, I don't know how many thousands of people like apply to go to this. So to even be there is like some layer of and vetting is like probably too strong of a word, but like there's an implied kind of like, this is a real one by basically everyone who's there, right? Like I have respect for every person who like walks through those doors and know that I'll have a great conversation with them. And I think the reverse is true. I think a lot of people feel that. So a lot of the conversations that I had with people, the thing I took away from last Capital Camp talking to a ton of people and hearing different fun pitches is kind of like, 
just understanding our fund's position in the world and like who good like LPs, customers and relationships for us would be. And so this year I was able to be a little more intentional about being like, okay, this is the handful of people that I should meet. I'm going to make this list. I'm going to be sure that I meet these people because this is the context for me where I can meet them and start a trusting relationship and understand what they need and they can understand what I provide and we can take off from there. And last year that resulted in a number like great relationships, kind of like Mitchell's describing and people start doing business together. And I think that'll happen a few more times from this year. Did you use the Capital Camp app to like organize with people? This is my first, I just obviously got on it this year. And I was like, man, this would be like a really useful tool year round. Do people like post in there? Like, will be people be posting there from now until next year? Or are they just kind of like disappear? I think it kind of wanes off in the middle, but like it is basically a CRM. And so like you can find, you can search people who are there or words of people who like descriptions, whatever they provide. And then once they connect with you, you get their, their email. So it's not like you can email, you can't spam everybody, but if you kind of mutually opt in to like, Hey, we talked, Wait, we hung I, out. It's I have cool. their email. If you connected with them, you do. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I accept all the connections. So I didn't know, I don't know so, how to yeah, use yeah. it. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay. So I started getting emails from people from Capital Camp. I didn't know how they got my email. They just, I thought they just guessed yeah. it. <laughs> no, it's okay, not a hard cool. email to guess, but yeah, 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 yeah it's in there. <laughs> Which is a they huge tool. A, a, or, I mean, this, we're Oh talking. my God. I have their email, their phone number. Oh my God. <laughs> no, right now. I'm terrible <laughs> at things that like, I'm so terrible at things like this. Well, you you hid from everybody the whole time. This, this is great. You that's can, not, now you can you know reach out. You can, do the, you can do it one-on-one now. It's perfect. No, you can do play your game. I did not hide. You know that's not true. <laughs> was, you were mobbed. There's an invite link to the Riverside. We can kind of call in. We can get some guests, get a panel going, but you know, that is an interesting idea of like, there's Hampton out there who you were telling me, David, that one of your founder friends who you respect loves being in Hampton because you just get access to the slack of a bunch of people who have already vetted relationships and solved a bunch of problems. And yeah, I mean, I love building a network just for that reason of like the more and more people I know who can solve interesting problems for me and my clients. So these are some discussions. So these are discussions I'm obviously having with Patrick and I'm having with Sam. So Sam and Patrick are like the two people I talk to the most about like, clearly like you could scale a wonderful business podcast on just advertising alone. But like, you know, my goal is like to definitely have like a vertically integrated podcast just because like I like dealing with less amount of people and I like control. Like I'm obsessed with control, like most founders are. But this idea of like, I didn't think about it till now, but the value in like being personally vetted like the idea to have a community, not necessarily like Hampton, because that's not what I'm thinking of, but like just have a personal community of people vetted, very small. I think the value of that is excessively high. So there's all these different ideas that like we're going back and forth on, but around that, because like I even say, if you listen to some of my ads, like no one's going to advertise on founders unless I know the founder. You know what I mean? Like a lot of them have become friends with, but even now we have uh, Matt, the CEO of Colossus was texting me yesterday about a bunch of the inbound interests. And it's just like, yeah, that's fine. But like, no one's getting on until I talk to the founder. Like I want to be able to, like, I, first of all, they have to listen to the podcast. They have to like, know, you know what I mean? Like it just makes so much sense. It's just so much easier because then you understand the power. Every single person advertising right now, not only do they listen, but all a bunch of their founder friends listen. So they know it's just an easier like relationship to build. But this idea where you're essentially selecting for other maniacs on a mission. Like what if you could build an entire network where there's no casuals at all? I'm sure there were some casuals at Capital Camp, right? 
But like, what if you had just, and it might not even be a big number, but it might just be, you know, whatever the number is, but like, I'd be extremely interested just the way that Mozart in his day, it was so fucking hard to go out and find other A players. Like if you had a way to really filter for A players and then you allowed a way to do this, like what you said, like it's a warm introduction. The fact that they made it through the vetting and they, they're at capital camp makes you more likely to like be able to engage with that person. And then you can exchange information like on the capital camp app. I think that's a really good idea. I just looked up some guy that sent me a message yesterday or a couple of days ago, whenever that was. And I clicked on it and now I was like, oh shit, I have his, his name, his phone number, his, the, the company email. I have his LinkedIn. I have all this other stuff. Like that's super valuable. Then it's like, Hey, we know each other. Like this guy sent me a message. I think he knows you, Eric. I forgot who he told me he knows. He knows somebody that I know. And now I'm like, oh, okay, well, he's at Capital Camp. He knows my friend. Okay, now I can ask questions and like talk to him in a different level than I could just some kind of stranger. That's actually a, an interesting idea that I'm going to think about. We could call it the Animaniacs. <laughs> I like Maniacs on a Mission, but I think that uh, that is taken. Uh, I don't think I can, I can have ownership on that. Uh, let's do it. Well, like I didn't come up with it and like, there was, it. That, um, but it's about you. No. So that's fine. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So, so that's from business, but like, what about, uh, you were talking about like making it easier interface people w- with your fun and everything else. But like, what about personal conversations that you had or oh, any I mean, that, that stick out? A, a ton of those. Like I had like the handful of people that I met that I would like set out specifically to me was great. At this moment, like at the very end, it was like 10 PM Thursday night. The, almost all the buses were gone. And this woman just runs up to me. He's like, Eric. And I was like, oh, Tammy, like Tammy Winter, who like runs the Stripe Press thing, who I've been like seeing her. Se- I had, I couldn't see her sessions before, but like we just ran into each other at the very end. We both like really excited fans of each other's work. I was like, this is, I have like been aware of you for like three years and like thought someday I would meet you and this would be exciting. And like, here it is just like happening again or happening for the first time. But like, Again at Capital Camp, this the context for this happens. So like that was that was a really great one, and I was just like, I'm so glad that they're going to republish Port Charlie's Almanac this year. I was just like, I, I talked to Tam. I, I met her as well. I need to message her because like I want a book of Paul Graham's essays, and I can't feel yeah. like there's a better person to do it than than her and Stripe Press. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, 100%. I know you got hackers and painters. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking like, yeah, that was a long time you could, ago. You could, yeah, you could edit it, select it, whatever the case is. But like, I have it literally in like eight by 11 paper, you know, like fucking yeah. paper clips. I want this in book form. <laughs> like, I think they're yeah. so powerful. And I just think that like, I'd be interested if she'd be interested in publishing that. But yeah, the Poor Charlie's Almanac, I talked to her about that. And then they're working on something with uh, Bernard Arnault as well, which would be oh, interesting cool. if, that, if that actually develops and comes out. Because again, like there's all the vast majority of what's written about that guy is in French. There's a guy I need to, I'm glad I got to meet him. He's been listening to Founders Forever. He's been sending me insane book recommendations, like literally like, I don't know, like 25 good book recommendations over since like 2019. His name's Cameron Priest. Oh, um, I hung out with that guy a long time. I like him a lot. Yeah, uh, we all talked outside of the atrium. Yeah. Me, you, yeah. and I forgot uh, the, the other He's just moving thing. to San Francisco. So if you're listening to this and you want to hang out with a cool ass dude in San Francisco, find him on Twitter. But what he's been helpful for is he's been translating a bunch of the the French biographies of uh, Bernard and sending, I, I sound so silly when I, I like Bernard. I'm just going to call him. I know that's not, it's Bernard or Nault. How about that? But, Bernie. Bernie. So, <laughs> but yeah, he, this idea of like taking these things that are hard to find, which, you know, straight press just did this with their excellent, they republished Van Ever Bush's pieces of action, his autobiography. I've been looking for that book for years. The cheapest I found, it was like $850. And then like two years later, straight press is like, oh yeah, 
republishing it. And now anybody mm-hmm. can buy it for, you know, 40 or 50 bucks. Like, I, I love what they're doing over there. I got two episodes on Where's My Flying Car, one Senra style recapping my notes and two, uh, an interview with the author. And I found that, I think I found that book because of their them republishing it. It's been one of the most formative books I've ever read. I love it. It absolutely lays out the case for like the next industrial revolution between nuclear power, nanotech, and AI. It's so cool. It gives you such an optimistic view of the future. And, and you know what's crazy? It sounds insane that in modern day, like there's not a Kindle version. Before Stripe Press, there would not be a Kindle or digital version of Poor Charlie's Dominic that you can like search yeah. and annotate. Like you clearly need that. Obviously. We all need yeah, that. Or yeah. Or even... The Carol book, uh, Power Broker, you can't buy as an ebook. I had to like, mm. I do this. I just rip books down the spine and just scan them in through my work scanner. And oh, really? Put them on my iPad. Yeah. It's like a that's psychopath. Awesome. But, um, <laughs> that's what I did with that. What, um, yeah, I saw on the list that you wanted to talk about lessons from Sam Zell. He passed away recently, which was devastating and unexpected. Yeah, man. I feel like I was just finishing your episode about him because you met him like a few months ago and he was doing deals and saying he'd do deals till he died. I, I thought we'd and do did. a little memoriam if, if you had anything that you were reflecting on. But I will say, go listen to the episode you did with yeah. him. That's uh, episode, what, 297? See, everybody thinks I haven't memorized. I definitely don't. Let's see if I, I'm pretty sure I got that one wrong. It is episode 298. See? I was wrong. Oh, so, so uh, close. It's called I Had Lunch with Sam Zell. So the crazy thing about that is this is also the magic of podcasting because his very close friend put Sam Zell into my podcast. He listened to a bunch of episodes. Then he listened to the episode I did about his autobiography. He thought it was so good that he asked to meet me, which is makes no sense. It's like this guy sold a company for $40 billion. He's worth like, I don't even know, billions and billions of dollars. He's done all these businesses. He's world famous in the business community. And he's like, yeah, I want to meet this podcaster guy. One of the best compliments I ever got was after lunch, him and my friend Rick, our mutual friend Rick, went to the bathroom and I was waiting outside. And Sam Zell turns to him when they're at ur- the urinal together. He's like, I love that guy's energy. <laughs> so I was like, so I was like, yeah. But what, the, the miracle of podcasting is I, I get to meet him, right? I tell the story on that episode. So you got to listen. It's the first 27 minutes because the entire time I thought this isn't going to happen. Then I thought maybe I'm getting kidnapped. This is like some kind of psyop or whatever. But what I loved about Sam is like his just fierce dedication to sharing everything that he learned with the next generation of entrepreneurs. He would fly all around the world on his jet at his expense just to give talks to invest younger investors and entrepreneurs because like he just benefited from the lessons of so many people before him. That episode after the first 27 minutes is me going through this book that he read when he was a young man, this autobiography is a guy named Zeckendorf, that he took an idea of that book when he was like in his 20s and used it his entire life. And so he's, he felt, he's like, okay, I feel this obligation to, to repay this. And what happened is he had heard my, I had dinner with Charlie Munger episode. And then I had lunch with Sam Zell before I had dinner with Charlie Munger. I hadn't done the, I had lunch with Sam Zell episode. I did the Charlie Munger first. And then Sam reached out. He's just like, Hey, let's get, I'll fly down to Miami. Let's schedule. Cause he's down here all the time. He's got a bunch of friends and businesses and all this other stuff. But he's like, let's schedule dinner with David. We'll spend a few hours with him and I'll give him more like, more material so he can make a podcast that would be I had dinner with Sam Zell. And the day before, this is like a few weeks ago, a few weeks before he died. And the day before it got canceled, they said, oh, Sam's not going to fly down to Miami. He's not feeling good. He's sick. And I thought, you know, maybe it's the flu or some shit. I didn't fucking know like that he died from complications of whatever sickness he had. And this is something like one, I'm unbelievably grateful. I said on the podcast, like that's a day like he may not remember, but I'll never forget. But the crazy thing is 
I didn't know, like I was like the Sam Zell guy, right? I put out that podcast that, because it was like important to me. It was like a once in a lifetime experience. And then through the enthusiasm and through all the stuff that I learned from him, like I found out he died. I was in, I was flying back from New York. I was actually in Connecticut at headquarters of Colossus and Positive Sum. I was with Patrick earlier that day. I went to go see a friend of mine for lunch before I was going to go and fly out. And by the time lunch started till like an hour and a half later or something like that, I forgot what it was. It's like, I had like 25 text messages about Sam Zell dying. And then I had like a hundred emails. Then like, I don't even know how many DMs on LinkedIn and Twitter about Sam. I was like, oh my God, like I didn't know sharing the lessons of meeting him and then talking about him and then people hearing that, like they now associate him with me. And I'm very grateful for that. His close friend is grateful that so many people know who's more people know who Sam Zell was, what he was like was important to him and some of the lessons that were important to him and the books and the people that are important to him because of the podcast. But I also felt guilty, man, because like he didn't know he was going to die. I saw him, you know, what, two or three months before he dies, maybe. And it's just like, I didn't deserve to like spend. I took two hours from him and two hours of, you know, he had what, a couple thousand hours left. You got 168 hours in a week. How many weeks did he have left? 12 weeks? I don't know, like 15 weeks left. So that was the weird thing where I, I was very grateful that people like resonate with the podcast and with him and, you know, really look up to him. But I did feel like really guilty. It's not like I'm like losing sleep because I feel guilty. I just felt like, damn, man, I hope I did a good enough job on that podcast to like warrant some of his, a few hours when he didn't have that much time left. I think he chose to do that because he knew you would help sort of memorialize and make some of his lessons immortal and help spread them to more entrepreneurs, right? Like help other people learn from what he'd done and what he'd been through and his story. And that's, that was what he wanted. He, so he invested massively in that. And that was one of the many things. Like, I think that's so cool. I appreciate when people do that. You know, not every not every founder takes the time. And so I would say one thing, because after he passed away, Shane Parrish tweeted out, like, what's the one of the lessons that you learned from Sam? And the, I think the most important, I mean, his autobiography is full of interesting information. He's obviously a fucking business genius. The Zeckendorf book, you have to read. It's absolutely incredible. The guy's got stories for days. But something that Sam repeated to me over and over again is that you have to optimize for freedom. And he said it at least five times in the lunch. And that's how he's lived his life. And so this is my response to Shane, which I, I really think is like really, there's a lot of wisdom. It's going to sound very similar to like what you'd hear for Charlie Munger and Naval. But he says, uh, what I wrote is like, go for freedom. Freedom allows you to control what you work on. If you control what you work on, then you can work on what you love. If you love it, you'll do it for a long time. If you do it for a long time, you will get really good at it and money will come as a result of that. And so that was like his main message that he only did things. He, he had complete control over his schedule. He only went for freedom. He would not trade more money or prestige because he had, you know, those, both of those in abundance if he didn't get to control and he had to relinquish any part of his freedom. And so therefore, like he worked every day of his life, but it was fun to him. Yeah. It being at that dinner in Miami with you, David and Nick, and after the Shane Parrish meetup and just hearing you tell that story about Sam Zell, you know, buying that that what did you call it a legacy business or a family business or generational uh, business he called them generational businesses yeah and he goes oh, i just bought a generational business i and he's like lit i love up. this shit and like, <laughs> yeah, the, the like, day, he's like the day before i saw him he's like he like lights up and he's like you know he looks 81 he's like he lived life to the fullest that dude was wild man these are the people we, we're in this group chat me and mitchell in this group chat with chris powers 
And Sam Zell is like Chris's, one of Chris's heroes. And he posed the question, like, who would you rather have dinner with, Buffett or Sam Zell? And I was like, listen, I'm speaking from personal experience. I like Buffett, but Sam Zell is way more fun. Like, I would take Sam Zell's life over Buffett every single time because that dude, I like wild people. I like unconstrained, crazy people, not people who are worried about PR. Not saying like Buffett is, but like Sam Zell just had a lot more fun in life. You know what I mean? Like the kind of fun that that I'm interested in. And, you know, he just lights up. He's just like, I just spent $300 million. I tried to like Im- imitate his, vo- his gravely, vo- gravely voice. I just spent 300. He says, these are numbers. Like I didn't write it down. So, you know, don't, this, this is an exact quote, but he's like, I just spent $300 million buying 75% of this generational company that makes 50 million a year and they run on fax machines. <laughs> it's just like, he was just fucking excited about it. He just, this is like, and then he's like, and he made the point. He's like, man, I'm trying to give a lot of money away to charity and I can't help but make money faster and I can give it away. <laughs> like, he's just funny. He was funny, man. And it was such an experience. Like, I cannot believe that. You had told me that story about just him saying, hey, I'm going to buy businesses till the day I die. This is what I love doing. And then him passing away a few weeks later. And I I was one of those who like sent you the the message because, yeah, it just all connected. And it was like he said he'd do it till he died and he did it till he died. I mean, I don't know him, but it was just a... It's nice when people gain freedom and when people are happy with their lives and people get to do what they want to do. He's it, fired it, up. His like energy is, enthu- yeah. his enthusiasm and his energy for his work was contagious. And I think that it's not just him. It's anybody that's doing something that they're super interested in. It's think about like even us becoming friends. We go back to this calling card idea. Like I read Eric's book before I knew Eric. And so the, the, I had a chance to meet him. I'm like, oh, I already know him. Like I read his book. We hit like the same things. We're clearly like, we both love Naval. We both love Munger. Like it's very easy to make a relationship because your your work is your calling card to the world. And so it's like really- You know, Eric, by reading a book that literally has like none of his words in it, but yes. But, but <laughs> his, no, but just, it's just, so, just like what David no, no, said about, about like the associate, the, yeah. It's the, how, like, think about that. You can learn more about me by what passages- I choose to include in the podcast. You know what I mean? So it's like the the editing and the taste, you see the editing and the person's taste by the work that they make. That's true for my podcast. It's just true for Eric's book as well. It's like, he can choose not to put that. It's not like Naval was standing over his shoulder, like, nope, take that out or put that in. He had complete like autonomy. It's like, this is the stuff I feel is most important. Yeah, somebody else could do the exact same thing that I did and come up with a very, very different book. Yeah. Like talk more about that in the sense that like we can talk about the Rick Rubin. There was this kind of like Rick Rubin clip that came out of him talking about his ability to have fine taste and everyone's kind of clowning on him. But then he's they're not even clowning on Rick Rubin. They're making fun of people who have this idea that they have great taste when they don't, in fact, have great taste. But I mean, even the and we don't we can cut this out or we can talk about it but like your boy jeremy gaffon and the idea that people just know him as like a tastemaker now and it's become this like legend around him and it, it's propelling him into this weird world of people just like him and they want to be around him and they like his taste and okay they like this, his this is discernment this goes to the fact that this is not like conceit it's because this guy has been he was the first employee of tiny he's been buying businesses for like a decade 
he was missing parts of high school, going to conferences and like selling software at like conference. He's just got a weird, unique life experience. And that's why I'm glad. Like if you factor in like the what audience he, of one episode with him so is I, I, I was just you about, sent me. I was just about to get there. Like, I don't think anybody talk about content to commerce, right? No one has done more than than Germ than Jeremy in the sense that he had one Twitter thread that went viral. And then he went on one podcast called Audience of One, which is excellent. And like I think only like a couple hundred people had listened to two of those couple hundred people just have to be me and Patrick. And it's like, just from these two things, the amount of people that want to work with Jeremy because they see like, he's very talented. And so to your point, it's like, I was walking around New York city with him a few weeks ago. And I was like, dude, you're going to be like the fucking Rick Rubin of private markets investing because people trust his taste. And there's a ton of people that have all kinds of resources. And I'm not going to name who these people are, but two of the people are extremely fucking well-known <laughs> like you wouldn't believe the two platforms and they're both like, Hey, we should work together because I have all this deal flow. I have all this resources. I have all this stuff. And like, you can essentially be a, I could be a force multiplier to your taste. And so this idea where I was thinking about that today, cause I think I mentioned in, I can't remember what episode where Jay-Z, obviously I find him fascinating. I've been a huge fan of his work, but he, it just came in the news that he bought like the most expensive house in California history. He paid like $200 million for his house in Malibu. and I was thinking about him and Rick Rubin. I was actually in a walk and I was like, Rick Rubin's life is pretty crazy, right? We're like, he may not be the richest person in the music industry. He's definitely not the richest person, but he's really like, he's got enough money. He's got a beautiful house. He's got a beautiful studio. He can do whatever the fuck he wants for this time. But yet he has something that's more valuable than money. And he has access because people trust his taste to unique experiences. So I was, I was thinking about this because I had been listening to Magna Carta, Holy Grail, which Rick Rubin had he was involved in that album. And so Jay-Z told a story on a podcast or an interview one time where he invites Rick Rubin over to his penthouse in Tribeca and they're out on the, uh, they'd listened to the album, this is before it's released, and then they're out on Jay-Z's balcony. And Rick's like, man, you know, at the beginning of the album, it's like Justin Timberlake singing for like a, a minute and a half and Rick Rubin's trying to convince Jay-Z not to do that. And Jay-Z has this great way to imitate him. It's like, yeah, no one wants to hear all that, man. Like all this other stuff. Jay-Z kept it in. But my idea was just like, that experience is worth something. You can't buy it. So it's even maybe even more valuable, but it's like, the trust his taste so much that he literally invites, like he lets you, he, he wants you to work on his album, whether there's an exchange of money or not. In many cases, there is an exchange of money for that. But also it's like, he invites you to the studio. He invites you to his house. You're now in a private conversation. How much money would fucking people pay to go to Jay-Z's penthouse in Tribeca and hang out and have a conversation with him over a night? And so or that, go watch, watch Shangri-La and watch that like hang and figure out what, where you would want to be in that. And that so, and, awesome. and so people, I, I think people that dismiss, they think taste is some kind of, again, like this willy foo foo. It's like hard to, to nail down, but like good taste, there is something as good taste. And Paul Graham writes about this. Edwin Land talks about this. Steve Jobs talks about this. If you read the book, Creative Selection, the guy, Ken Kosianda, who wrote the book was a programmer for Steve Jobs. He's like, listen, Apple was the anti-Google. Google, when they make a decision, they're like, okay, what color blue should we use for this button? We'll test 150 fucking different shades of blue. Steve Jobs would walk up and be like, that one. The, Steve Jobs' taste writ large is the, cult, the design culture of Apple. He made the decisions. It's in that fucking book over and over again. I like that. I don't like that. He trusts his taste. And uh, so that's one of the most important things is like Billy Oppenheimer, who is the research assistant to Ryan Holiday, was just on Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast, Infinite Loops. And 
I'm always shocked when I'm listening to a podcast from two friends of mine and like I hear my name because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like sco- scoping us. Like, Ooh, I wonder if they're going to talk about me. And one of the best compliments that both of them gave me is like that David has excellent taste. But Bailey's like, I've read a lot of the same books that David has. And I'm fucking always shocked that when I listen to his podcast, I'm like, God damn it. He got the best parts. Like those are the best parts. And that's, I think that's really important because what does taste do? It allows people to trust you at scale. Rick Rubin, who in Mitchell's point, in that clip that went viral, they're like, he doesn't know how to play fucking instruments, doesn't know how to get behind a production board like Dr. Dre, doesn't do any of that. He's like, people pay you for your taste. That is a very real thing. I 100% believe that. And I'm finding it, like people ask me all the time, when can you scale, like how do you scale like the creation of these books? And I was like, you can imagine writing out the steps, but I can't, I can't replicate my own taste. Like I can't outsource that. I can't, like, I actually don't, with a little bit of hubris, like I think that I'm just better at that than most other people. Maybe all other people. But it's a similar thing to like reading a biography and pulling out the clips, taking in someone's whole body of work, whole body of public work, and understanding what are the most useful ideas there, what are the most timeless ideas, what are the most widely applicable ideas, and then arranging them in the proper order so that they present this picture of their not just their worldview and their experience, but the things that you can, the tools that they have honed and created that are ideas that you can adopt in the form that you just read them in two or three pages and like apply them to your own life. That's, it's weird to think of that as a skill, but like, it's clear to me now that it, it, it is. Clearly it's a it. fucking skill. Yeah. It's clear. I had to like, do this it is to what, like, what, this is understand it. This is frustrating about you to me, right? So let's, let's use this because now we're still talking about Capital Camp where now we're talking about what we like. The reason three of us get together is because we're all like building businesses and like we want to talk about like what that's like. And I'm like, the podcast feeds everything. Don't stop the fucking podcast, right? It's like you build relationships at scale. It's clearly like a superpower. And now once you're going, it's just going to keep compounding. If you're really interested in investing, then do that as well. But clearly to me is like, dude, you have this thing where it's like, start with the Almanac and Vol. Now you do the anthology. Give me the term. An- anthology anthology of <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> but are, are we going to say that, have you made, made public the next one you're going to work on or you don't want me to say anything? No, it's, we'll say it. I, I'm already, I'm two months into the book of Elon Musk. But you had a name for it, which was great that you told me at Capital Camp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how real this is, but I think the annals of Elon Musk would be fucking hilarious. That might be a special edition, not the mainstream cover, but we'll see what, we'll see what happens. But this idea where it's like exactly what I was saying my friend John Coogan is going to try to do on on a podcast where it's just like, I'm going to consume all this information and I'm going to tell a story. In his case, he might tell a story in like an hour or two hour long podcast. You're doing it in a couple hundred page book. It's like, dude, you found the fucking path. You found the thing that you're really, really great at. I just, ah, <laughs> just, I would dedicate as much possible to, it's none of my business what you do, obviously. But like, I see that I'm like, is if you cut out everything else, and I'm not saying cut out everything else, like, you know, if you're passionate about the other stuff, do it, like, whatever, it's your life. But like, I don't know, like, if you only did that in the podcast, especially because you have a bunch of help on your podcast, you know what I mean? You could show up and like, give the conversation. And then I think like hand it off and most of the other like stuff, you know, is outsourced. Like, cause instead of dropping a book every three years, you could drop one every year, you know, or like, I'm not trying to rush your process, but like, God damn it, that just seems clearly the path to me. So how do you think about that? It is much more clear to me and I am moving much faster than I have been before, right? Like the course like was a detour that I I needed to do that was interesting for me, but like it's not in the core of the stuff. Like these, the books are the majority of my time and of my work. It's just not obvious because I'm not publishing stuff about it all the time. 
But to me, the, the thing that is like coming together is like the reason that I do the books is not just the books. Like the reason that I do the books is to give to the next generation of like 18 year olds what I wish I had at 18, right? Like I learned so much over the last 10 years from Naval, from Elon, from watching this world develop that like if I had read those three books at 18 instead of the four hour work week and Richard Branson's biography or whatever, like I would be a very different person. I would be on a different path. I would be, I don't know. But I want to I want to make that available to like as many people as possible and just create these like extremely useful, succinct, rich, like insight dense resources for people that they can apply, that can like condensed, condensed, condensed wisdom. Like if you can take in 10 years of someone's experience and give that to someone in a few hours in a way that's highly memorable and changes their behavior, which is something that we talk about a lot, then you potentially just change the world. Like if you can reach that power law of people and create either create more of them or feed them and nurture them in a way that they haven't been already, like you make the future a massively better place. And I, I think the Fucking same, exactly. Yeah. So why aren't you working on that seven days a week? Because like, I think the same thing this, applies to the like the same why is it, like applies to the fund and the podcast. Like I think there are the only constraint isn't books, right? Like it's also connection. It's also conversation. It's also candid, like podcast stuff. Like I will say your podcast is like, just very close to the books that I produce, but it's so different than like this podcast that we're doing. But it's like, I don't know, it, it is all in service of the same mission to me, which I don't know, all fits together and like feeds each other, I think. So I would say one thing as far as we, we very rarely talk about tactics, but what I would say is like, what I would love for you, and you're starting to see this, like, obviously you see this on like my public facing feeds, right? And reading, I'm on the third Caro, God damn it, I said his name wrong again. I'm on the third Caro, Lyndon Johnson biography. And I text Sam Hinkie. I was like, dude, what if, I was like, there's like, I think I should promote the podcast the way LBJ campaigned. Like he just worked harder than everybody else on his promotion, on his campaign. And it's like, there's nobody else promoting their podcast like that. And so you're going to start to see a lot more of this from me. But me and you share the same thing in the sense that like we spend a lot of time reading and researching. And then what happens is like, I put this out into the world. You see my Twitter. If you look at the views my tweets get compared to like my follower count, they do excessively well, right? The levels of engagements are very high. And all that is, is like externalized atomic pieces of things that I had read. And when I think of you, I was like, Eric could be fucking doing this all day long. I like that you have an interview podcast because you get to build like relationships at scale. You might want to have like a secondary podcast feed, which is literally just dedicated to the books that you're doing as a way to like work in public. Essentially, if you think about it, like some of the stuff I tweet, some of it's after the podcast, some of it's before, but essentially I'm working in public. I'm like, oh shit, my practice a couple hours yesterday, I came across this interesting idea. So then I just put it out there that spreads through these centralized socialized social networks. And then it gets you more, it feeds back to your main thing. So all I would say is like, dude, I think you have a fucking massive opportunity. Like imagine if you just had a feed of Bologiisms or whatever, or Navalisms or whatever. If you don't want to just do it in your Eric Jorgensen feed. I just think that like, just like I think I could be doing so much more to promote my podcast. And I have LBJ as like the guy in my mind right now. It's like, oh, I'm just going to fucking promote like key campaigns. I think like you're sitting on a gold mine and I think either you, you could be the one saying, Hey, you could be the tastemaker. It's like, this is good. And you could just send it to, I know you got like assistants and shit and make sure they do it. But like, literally like just text, put this out on all my channels. You know, like, I just think there's so much, you're sitting on a fucking gold mine and I can tell from personal experience because my, my Twitter and my LinkedIn has grown, you know, quite a bit and that's super valuable. 
it is super valuable. And I would just love to see more of that. I would listen to a fucking podcast feed, which is you just updating. It doesn't matter every few days, once a week, whatever, just interesting things could be 10 fucking minutes long. It's like warming them up. Cause if let's say you had a biology podcast feed, right? Or whatever, Eric's books, podcast feed, whatever the fuck it's going to be called. And as you're writing the book over the last two years, you've shared maybe 50, 60, 70 micro lessons in the form of these episodes, just like Ogilvy said, he's like, the more you sell, the more you, the more you tell, the more you sell. He's like, I wrote a 17,000 fucking word Rolls Royce ad that people told me is way too long. He goes, guess what? If you get to the end of a 17,000 word Rolls Royce ad, you're buying a fucking Rolls Royce. Cause like That's no the- one's, no one's going to read the, the, no one's going to read and spend that much time on something and not have be heavily influenced for a purchase decision. So like the way I think about it, it's like, okay, I've listened to this podcast a year and a half. Eric's been show, warming me up to get ready for this culmination of this thing that he's going to produce. And then he drops a fucking episode and says, now, first of all, he says, now you can pre-order, right? So then I pre, maybe I didn't pre-order. Then he drops it and it says, now it's available. You're converting them all. Like you're converting them all. Well, uh, David, you had the experience of literally dropping a three-minute ask in your podcast feed to say, come to this one place in Miami on this day and 200 people or however many literally show up to a specific location at a specific time. Uh, that's insane. Now, but imagine, but imagine like that SETI drip and it's essentially like what, what Ogilvy's talking about is like, listen, man, don't use fucking superlatives in your ads. Give them information. People want information. And so every single micro lesson on this hypothetical podcast feed is it's a helpful dose of information. It's a hidden ad because you don't even see the fucking cell because it's like, damn, I listened to fucking, he published 75. I listened to 15, 11, five of them were absolutely amazing. 10 were good. I'm going to buy yeah, I'll spend the $25 on his book and then I'll buy it for my friend or I'll buy it from all my office. That's my whole point, man. It's just like these kind of things. I think the advantage I'm going to have is that other podcasters are like spread out. We're like, there's two things that we're going to test right now that I know for a fact, no other business podcasters are doing. I can't talk about it yet. I'll tell you after the fact. And it just comes from like one, the books I'm reading, but also it's like not allowing myself to think about anything. We're else. not going to publish so this. There's for no like power a, leakage. We're going to publish this in like three or four weeks. So if that's enough time, you can talk about it. No, no, no. I don't want to say anything because I don't, okay, this would right. be multiple. This might be, I won't know the result for maybe months. So my point being is like, it goes back to Zach's power leak idea. You know what I mean? Like all my power is under one, it's, it's one thing. Nothing's leaking out. All my best ideas are going to be to one thing. Do, I'm not saying don't do it. Obviously the podcast makes sense. The fun makes sense, whatever the case is, but it may be the distribution instead of being, you know, I don't know if it's a third, 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 how you spend your time. Can you give us the, the pie graph? Are you comfortable giving us the pie graph? 50% books, 40% fun, 10% podcasts. Yeah. What would be the difference? Like if you could get it to 75 or 80% book, or what's the difference in 10 years from now? You've probably written an extra three books that you didn't, you know what I mean? That wouldn't exist otherwise. And you're self-publishing, you're going to build a fucking large audience. Like one of these books is going to wind up selling, you know, a million, two million copies self-published. You just made 25, $30 million and you're doing something you fucking love. Like, I don't know. Like I go fucking yeah. And I go, I just go crazy over this shit because it's just like, I feel like I'm kind of annoying because my whole thing is like, just, I tell people over and over again, just focus more and no one does it. <laughs> and so like, then I repeat it. And then people are like, fuck that guy, man. He's just like, he's just telling me to focus all the time. Like I'm not going to talk to him anymore. <laughs> I spent a week smoking David Sinra crack and you, you know, that uh, I'm dropping you off at the airport, David. And I'm like, 
You're going to have the biggest podcast in the world. I mean, look, <laughs> it, it, every episode's evergreen. Every You get caught into this trap of David, but it's like the books are evergreen. The podcast, it, like this podcast that we're on right now is highly topical. We're talking about an event that 400 people went to at one point in time. Small Tim, the annals of Elon, evergreen and oh, forever. To be clear, to be very clear, I'm not having you guys on my podcast because I think it's a good idea for my business. <laughs> like, thank you. This is just yeah, is that, that anyone will listen. purely yeah, recreational fun. from my point of view. Yeah, this is just um, fun. Like, I, I, like Eric, and that's, Eric knows this I make because space I for that, right? Like, I enjoy this shit. Eric knows that because I see the same tweets that he does because he responds to them where it's like, I just fucking discovered the Almanac and the Vol. When did that book, when, when, what day was that book published? Do you remember? Late 2020, September 2020. Okay. So fucking almost three and a half years later or whatever, it's three years later and people are still discovering. There's like to, to Mitchell's point, they're going to discover it five Dude, years from now. 10 we years sold from more now. books in 2022 than we did in 2021. It, like it is growing. 14, Not doing anything. Is it growing? Reviews. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. These are all like red fucking flashing lights. Ding, like the universe will give you these signs. You just have to listen to them and most people don't listen. The other like tactics or if we could talk, but, and it was, I told you this and a bunch of people have told you this, David, but like David has a way that he posts everything that looks like David. Standard. Yeah. If you can. Oh, I've yeah, got that if now. You can standardize. I got a pretty, I got a pretty yellow graphic. I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote you it, it, saying that and I'm going to post it. Well, thank you. That, yeah. I mean, you can standardize your, your yellow graphic and post Elon and Balaji and Naval all day long and, and just keep it rolling. And but the I point, mean, wait, wait, is, don't skip over Ogilvy's point though. It's give them useful information. Useful information will compel them to make a purchase decision more than saying, hey, look at me, I'm new, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. All this other superlative bullshit that you see in a bunch of ads. It's like, no, this is useful. Just like when he's sending all these updates to 600 people. Where it's like he sent somebody a sixteen fucking page, sage, sixteen page speech that was valuable. Sam Brockman at that time he's reading as one of the richest people in the world. I have a ton. There's a, multiple billionaires and super wealthy people listen to my podcast. It's like they're telling you with their actions that they get value out of this. And guess what happens? Sam Brockman gets to the end of the sixteen fucking page speech. He's ready to buy. He is ready to join up with Ogilvy and on his advertising agency for my thing is just like all I want other people to do is get so much value out of it. They are compelled to tell other people about it. If this is the Sam Hinky episode of this podcast, which it is like the first time I ever talked to Sam, you know, I have this pin tweet thread of threads that will make me millions and millions and millions of dollars in my life because all I did was for a long time, write everything I know about tax and just keep writing it and just keep writing it. And yeah, at the end of my co first conversation with Sam ever, that was, that was a long, interesting conversation. He just was like, yeah, that thing you're doing, just keep doing that. <laughs> like that is what you, that is who you are. That's what you do. And but, so this is so silly because like the fact that he would say that is also important in the sense that like it goes against human nature to keep doing what works. Like Charlie Munger says, like our main insight is just, we're just going to repeat what works. Sam Walton says the same stuff. Olgavi says the same thing. He goes, stop fucking pulling your ads before they lose effectiveness. He's like, I ran the same Hathaway ad, the exact same Hathaway ad for 21 straight fucking years. They get it's this. It's not a standing army. It's no, a marching band. But they people, people do this. They're like, 
oh, it's like I did this thing, it works, but it's like, oh, it's either boring to me or it's like it, it had to reach everybody by now. Newsflash. No, it didn't reach anybody. Like you have to keep doing it. His Dove soap ad, he ran the same Dove soap ad in the same magazine for 34 straight fucking years. And it still works. So Sam's advice was one, valuable, but two, also goes against human nature because they quit or they change or they go and seek. They're like, we're novelty seeking primates, man. This is like, oh, I got to go do something else. It's like, no, you found the thing you do. Now put all of your power behind that and don't have any leakage. I like that leakage. I like the power leakage as a metaphor for all the all of the things that we're doing. That's a great one. Thank you, I Zach. Mean, it, Fort Worth, Zach. <laughs> thank, thank you, Fort Worth, Zach. Yeah, I mean, you see this over and over of like, and people will rag on these. Uh, they're like, I don't even want to name anybody by name, but there are people on Twitter who have built massive brands by saying the same thing over and over and over again in, in 20 different ways once a week. And you get hundreds of thousands of followers and they make millions of dollars. And what they're saying happens to be right. But yeah, people go, all they do is say the same thing over and over again. They have no value to add. And it's like, man, if somebody just said, eat less and work out more or floss your teeth every night. Like there could be an, a, a, a Twitter account that just every morning and every night said, did you floss your teeth? And they'd be right. I mean, it wouldn't add that much value, but they would be right. Like, so, you know, when people say, hey, go write everything you know and quit your job and go start helping people in this small way and you'll build an audience and you'll build a business for yourself, they're not wrong. And so if they just like, yeah, the novelty is crazy. Cause I, I think that all the time I'm like, I've already kind of said everything I have to say and started again from the top, read it. <laughs> yeah. And there was a, the next time you write, I it, think it was different. Is it Alex Lieberman or Austin Lieberman? The, um, he started uh, morning brew, morning brew. Yeah. Alex, Alex, he just shared a tweet that was him tweeting the exact same thing from 12 months ago, like word for word and it going viral all over again. And he's like, this game is not complicated. Like, <laughs> don't be afraid to reuse what works. In fact, it's, you should be afraid to not reuse what works, which is, I don't know. It's a great, it's a great point. And it bears repeating because like you said, it has to, it goes against your nature. So you have to repeat it constantly. Both me and Mitchell repost our, our most popular posts all the time. And in many cases, they'll do even better the second, third, fourth, and fifth time because your audience has grown. And because you like the most popular tweet I ever wrote that wasn't a picture of a hot dog was just this thing that I'm going to repost it again. And, and we reposted it out of Tax Credit Hunter. But like it was what it was my most popular post ever. And I recopyright the whole thing and repunched up the whole thing and added good ideas and had a, you know, killer hook, reposted it. And it got like 18,000 likes and a zillion retweets and, and it just gained 5,000 followers. And it like, it's time to do it again. Stick with what works. Uh, one more. That's what we're all here to hold ourselves accountable to. Yeah. One more thing. Wrap it. Let's, one more uh, thing. Cherry, is, drop a cherry on top, David. Well, the lit you put at the top of the document that you wanted to talk about, you said, I've been listening to David all day. Thank you very much for your time and attention. I really appreciate it. Put a lot of my life energy into making these fucking podcasts and I'm glad you get value out of it. But you said, I like the climb. I don't care what the summit is. Do you want to like, like expound on why you decided to include that? Oh, I just, I like that you quoted that. Like that was you, that was your own original quote, I think from your Sam Zell episode. 
Yeah, it's not my quote. Nothing is my quote. It's from this rapper <laughs> named Russ that I talked about on stage oh. at Capitol Camp. Oh, okay, right, right, right. Yeah, I remember you telling me about Russ. That's a, that's a cool story. But I, I just I love that quote, and I think it's a really good resolution to. I think the tension that a lot of people feel about like trying to reach something like the, this, the illusion of trying to reach a destination or trying to reach some state. And it's like, it's just about finding a, a climb that you enjoy and getting as far as you can in a way that's fulfilling to you and doesn't destroy your fucking life. I, I, just thought, I thought that was a great summary. I was like, oh, I'm going to write that down because I want to share it and I want a lot of other people to hear it. And I want to remember to tell it to the right people at the right time in their life. I think it ties into something else I said on the Sage Capital Camp, where the one of the main benefits of doing the podcast is the fact that like when I get to the end of these books, because they're biographies, it's like, I didn't just get to the end of the book, I got to the end of somebody's life. And this idea where there's just some fucking point in the future, this like end of the journey, this destination where you're like, okay, I got what I wanted and I was satisfied, doesn't fucking exist. Humans are not made that way. Nothing. Like you could sell your company for a billion dollars, because that's what you thought you want to do your whole life. And then two weeks later, you're like, why the fuck am I depressed? And I think the key to that is understanding. It sounds so fucking simplistic, but you see this in all this like religious do documentation that goes back like throughout human history. It's like the journey is a reward, dummy. Like, and I'm, I'm calling myself dummy to remember that, right? It's just like, and the way I think about it, the better than the journey is a reward. I like that term better. I like the climb. I don't care where the summit is. And so people are always like, well, what are you going to do after this? Or what are you going to do in addition to this? It's like, why would I, this is it. This is what I'm doing. I'm able to do it now and enjoy it. I'll keep doing it because I've been reading my whole life. I'll continue to read. And so it's like, this is, I like the climb. I don't care what the summit is. Something that I, I text both Patrick and Sam Hinkie because they're friends with this guy named Graham Duncan is an example of this. And they both put me on a gram. He has excellent, excellent blog, but he also has this excellent interview with Tim Ferriss. And in 2008, Graham was profiling this guy. He's like one of the best tennis players in the world. And I don't follow tennis, right? His name is Novak Djokovic, right? And this is what he said. This is what Graham picked up in 2018. And he's quoting this Financial Times article about the tennis player. And he says, I can carry on playing at this level because I like hitting the tennis ball. Then he's asked by the interviewer, are there other players who don't? And Djokovic says, oh yes, there are people out there who don't have the right motivation. I can see it, but I don't judge. So I read the entire article. Then I go, look, this article's old. So then at the time, Djokovic is tied for like, he's got like 12 grand slams or something. He's like third or fourth or fifth most on the list, right? But he's saying, oh, I'm gonna play at this level for a long time because I like hitting the ball. Then I go look up because I don't fucking follow tennis. Where's he at now? This is like five, six years ago. He's tied for number one. And the reason I see this is like, I'm so in a lot of podcasts for number one chats, of all time, right? not of all just time. time. Right. I like hitting the ball. I like the climb. I don't care where the summit is. And what I say is like, I'm in a lot of these podcasts or group chats. We share a lot of tactics and everything else. And I see the same thing. Your motivation is out of whack. And you may do this now because you're having success, or maybe you find a way to, cause you want the fame or you want like to monetize in other ways. It's like, I just like making podcasts. And so I'm going to be here forever. And that I know. I can't say the same thing about you. And I think that's what's like, I'm, it's just a war of attrition, man. It's like how many, uh, let's see who's around a decade from now. That's another rapper line. That's Drake. Like, let's see who's around a decade from now. Cause that's all that matters. Like, I'm not worried about growth. I'm worried about durability because if I'm durable, the growth will happen as a natural result of being durable. Media compounds. 
And so the reminder of myself is it's like, I like to climb. I don't care what the summit is. I think my summit's going to be high as a motherfucker. It's going to be Everest level. But even if it's not, like if it's Kilimanjaro, and I may have like killed the analogy. It's like, it's still going to be fucking, it's going to be one of the peaks, man. It may not be the highest peak because to, to what Mitchell says, like, I'm not trying to make the biggest podcast in the world. I'm trying to make the best and to have the best audience. And that's two different things. I'm not going to have more listeners than like a Joe Rogan or some shit like that, but I will have the right audiences and I'll get the audience I deserve because of the work I put in for a very long time. And that's a byproduct of just liking the climb. I like the climb. I like hitting the balls. That's why I'm going to be here forever. You like making podcasts. Mitchell loves saving tax. I'm trying to save the world for the next generation, tech entrepreneurs. And we're getting it done slowly but surely. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you will love those previous episodes with David David and Mitchell, episode number 62 and 50. You will also love the banter, the bullshit, and the stories behind Rolling Fun. So check out my episodes with Al and Bo. We do one every quarter with all of our new investments, the companies that we've invested in. And if you're excited by those episodes, you can invest alongside us. And it makes listening to the episodes even more fun when you know you've got some capital in them, some skin in the game. Check out rolling.fun to learn more or reach out to me through DMs. Be very happy to chat with you. For a free way to support the show, please leave a quick review or text this episode to a friend or coworker you think would enjoy it. I hope you learned something. I hope you giggled a little bit. I appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.